0: Keep being you and treat yourself to some Conair Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So, as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandys. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Annabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows and more. We are your super group of scintillating details, your Quincy Jones of quite interesting facts and for the next two hours, we are your world. My name's Jordan Runtog (laughs) and I'm Alex Eigel. And today we are talking about one of the best selling songs of all time. A song that boasts more top tier talent than perhaps any other. A song that brings new meaning to the phrase, well, it's the thought that counts. (laughs) A song that I have definitely never sat down and listened to start to finish. We are talking about We Are The World by the one-off supergroup calling themselves USA for Africa. (laughs) USA. USA. Yeah, it's not as pithy as a name as the UK counterparts Band-Aid. I know it's not the first overstuffed charity record to come onto the scene. Again, that honor belongs to Don't They Know It's Christmas Time by Band-Aid. But this one has never been topped in terms of scope. Everything about it is (laughs) so huge. Some might say overblown and bloated. In fact, (laughs) I will. Some 45 by my count of the biggest names in music crammed into to a single studio, setting aside their musical and sometimes personal differences for a greater cause. Together, they work till sunrise to make a seven-minute musical message of hope for a brighter day for an Africa ravaged by famine. And though the song itself has been described by stereo gum writer Tom Bryan as a, quote, tranquilizing musical <laughs> irritant, it has raised over $80 million for charitable causes, which, uh... Done more for the world than, hey, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody ever did, so hard to knock it. Uh, But it's hard to remember now, but We Are The World is really the first of its kind, or at least in the first wave alongside the Band-Aid song. We take it for granted now that there are all these celebrity charitable projects, but this is really the first time that a big group of stars mobilized behind a single project. It was so obscure that when they were recruiting artists to sing on it, the organizers had to go out of their way to even explain what this was. It was pitched as a space-age woodstock for a new generation, which is a great quote, and sort of a gathering of a new kind of tribe to look out for their fellow man. That was the optimistic pitch, at least. Cynics have said that even more money would have been raised if the artists and their label bosses had merely donated a few percentage points of their income instead of staging a big, splashy display. But yeah, 80 um, million
2: is like what Clive Davis's annual bonus at this time?
1: Yeah, I don't really have a, have a follow-up to that. <laughs> but uh, I do feel that raising awareness was key. And We Are The World really helped shine a global spotlight on Africa and its issues, making it really top of mind in American homes for the first time. Uh, musically, it's pretty inexcusable, right? <laughs> um, it's fine. It's often of the case, <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, it's fine. As is often the case, the more stars you throw on a song, the worse it gets. I call it housemate syndrome. Mm. You know how, like, in the common area of your house or apartment, like the little entryway or whatever, the part that no one person actually mm. owns, it just kind of goes to hell because no one takes ownership of it? That's what happens with supergroups. It's all just, like, responsibility gets spread too thin, and then as a result, so does the blame. And uh,
2: that's why supergroups don't work, in my opinion. Anyway, Heigl, what do you think about We Are the World? Oh, it's dog <laughs> um, But it's uh, it's just so fascinating. I mean, I think earlier we called it, I called it uh, the highest talent to lowest quality ratio of all time. Yep. Can't think of anything, any other single artistic achievement. It's like if every Renaissance master, the Ninja Turtles were named after, got Ah. together to paint the Sistine Chapel and came up with like dogs playing poker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My personal obsession with this, with charity singles extends furthest to uh, stars by hearing um, oh yeah. Oh, we, we Which is that, the, yeah. the Ronnie James Dio led charity project. Um, the heavy metal the charity heavy, single. Yes, with twelve guitar solos uh, <clears throat> and like six vocalists all just doing their doing their damnedest. Um, how how long is this? Is it a long song with all those solos, or are the solos
1: like four seconds apiece?
2: Uh, I think they get like four bars. I've only, I've never again. Nothing I've ever, I've never actually heard this song. I've yeah. only seen the full length YouTube documentary about it, which is <laughs> hilarious because it is like every single LA hair metal guitarist coming in uh, and just wanking. It apparently, I was just looking it up. Uh, Ronnie James Dio's widow said that it, um. Has raised over three million dollars. Three so, million, yeah. It's not the very world much. Did Eighty million. I yeah, I know, say. I know. But, but, Counterpoint did. Uh, we are the world have um, Dio. <laughs> did, did it have, have any guitar solos? Know? Yeah, exactly. How many guitar solos did they have? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think Bono was wrong when he said rock and roll can change the world. Um, <laughs> But uh, it can raise money, and that's kind of what I've always tried to do. I have no interest in anyone writing protest songs anymore, but I can cut a check, <laughs> and I can throw shows that uh, I did. I don't do it anymore, but I, I threw you shows that, that, that yes. cut checks. So yes, that's did. what I believe in. Um, and yeah, man, I, just the assemblage of ego and personality. I mean, I, don't, I guess I don't want to call it ego, personality, because it seems like they, uh, the egos were actually checked at the proverbial door mostly. But man, just the... Where else are you going to see Dion Warwick uh, help uh, Willie Nelson find his place on a piece <laughs> of sheet music as he comes in a half beat late? I urge all of you to watch the documentary
1: on the making of We Are The World on YouTube. It is... It's like the way that, like, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here should have been. It's the weirdest thing in the world to see these 40-something celebrities in this not very big space just awkwardly interacting with each other all night. They're, like, kept awake for, like, 12 hours. It's great.
2: Yeah, you think they you think they did that uh, naturally? <laughs> it was 1985, so no. <laughs> Draw your own conclusions. Yeah. So while I might
1: not be able to speak to the song's musical merits, I am... Endlessly fascinated, as you are, by We Are The World, both as a relic of a very specific era, kind of the last hurrah of the monoculture, and also just the truly bizarre circumstances under which it was made. You know, as you mentioned earlier, with so many personalities and egos and neuroses, you better believe we have some incredible stories. I'm just so excited. This is probably the most anecdote-rich episode we've ever had, so <laughs> I'm just thrilled to dive in. From Michael Jackson, hiding in the bathroom in terror... <laughs> just right out of the gate to Lionel Richie getting spooked by MJ's missing snake to Prince blowing off the session and bailing his bodyguards out of jail to Cindy Lauper's wardrobe difficulties, Bob Dylan's intense stage fright to the surprising reason why Huey Lewis was given a solo when Smokey Robinson was not. Plus all the reasons why everyone loved Ray Charles and Bruce Springsteen. Besides the obvious here is everything you didn't know about. We are the world. So when you talk about We Are The World, the first person everyone usually thinks of is Quincy Jones. He's traditionally viewed as the mastermind behind this, the apex of all charity singles. But it was actually the recently departed Harry Belafonte who jumpstarted the project. He was watching a news report of the Ethiopian famine one night shortly before Christmas in 1984. And this report included footage of a volunteer doctor being interviewed as a line of sick, malnourished children stretched beyond his tent. And this doctor was asked, how can you handle working in these conditions when the problem seems so massive, almost irreversible? How can you get up every day to face such an awesome task? And the doctor replied, I take them one at a time. And this simple answer is essentially what spurred Harry Belafonte to action. Also, obviously, it's important to note that We Are The World was done in the wake of Band-Aids Do They Know It's Christmas, the 1984 charity single organized by Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats fame and star of Pink Floyd's The Wall. <laughs> and also Jur, the other guy who did Do They Know It's Christmas Time. Remember him? Nope. It's in the UK band Ultravox. Okay, moving on. Uh, and Band Aid, the original British charity supergroup, featured members of U2, Wham, Culture Club, Duran Duran, Phil Collins. Paul Weller, Sting, and and the rest, other stars (laughs) from the UK. Uh, And for years, it was the biggest selling single in British history. So Harry Belafonte was seeking to make a star-studded Yankee equivalent to help alleviate the Ethiopian famine, which at this point had killed nearly a million people in just under two years. And so the first thing Harry Belafonte did was contact a very influential entertainment manager and fellow activist named Ken Cragen. And Ken Cragen is probably the least famous name involved with this star-studded spectacle, but he's the secret MVP of We Are The World. His first move, Ken Cragen, was to draft his clients Lionel Richie, who volunteered his writing services for the song, and Kenny Rogers. And he also got Stevie Wonder involved through Lionel Richie. who was his old Motown label mate. And I love this. Lionel Richie spent days trying to find Stevie Wonder. And as we discussed in our Songs in the Key of Life episode, Stevie is uh, quite the independent spirit and a tough guy (laughs) to track down. Uh, And getting him to return phone calls was next to impossible. But thankfully, they had some help from a holiday miracle. (laughs) On Christmas Eve, Lionel Richie's wife was at a fancy L.A. jewelry store doing some last-minute Christmas shopping when who should walk in but Stevie Wonder? And he asked her for some help picking out some gifts, and he said, I will if you call my husband immediately. And he did, and he agreed to sign on. Does that count as blackmailing? <laughs> extortion, please. Yeah,
3: extortion. <laughs> yeah.
1: So now this project was initially envisioned by Harry Belafonte as a benefit concert rather than just a recording. But Ken Cragen, he wasn't so hot on this concert idea. He'd been the manager for the late folk singer Harry Chapin, the guy who sang, you know, Cats in the Cradle with the the, 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 the Bad Dad anthem. <laughs> uh, Taxi, that's a great song, not the theme song to the show Taxi, but Mm, Past the other one. (laughs) Uh, He was very active, Harry Chapin, in fighting hunger and homelessness and did a lot of fundraising. And following Harry Chapin's death in a freak car accident in 1981, Ken Craig had been working for years to try to put a benefit show together in his honor. And he quickly discovered that charity concerts are a gigantic pain in the ass. He also remembered what a relative financial disaster events like George Harrison's concert for Bangladesh was and also the No Nukes concerts in the late 70s. Just charity concerts really tough money rarely goes to the right place Uh, bad idea so instead ken Cragen suggested a recording session instead to do a charity single although i guess in quincy jones retelling of the story he says that when they first brought him on the whole usa for africa project it was meant to be a tour which sounds like a nightmare and he said that would have never worked with all those artists it would have been the shortest tour in the history of music but this was also in the same spate of interviews when Quincy was talking about like knowing who killed JFK and dating Ivanka Trump and stuff. So grain of salt. So I've heard conflicting versions on how Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones are brought into the mix for We Are the World. One version is that Lionel Richie asked Michael Jackson to come aboard and Michael said he wanted to bring his thriller collaborator Quincy Jones too. I question this Because despite their Motown connection, Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson really barely knew each other. Their last big connection was in 1971 when Lionel's band, the then-unknown Commodores, opened for 13-year-old Michael when he was in the Jackson 5, which must have been galling for Lionel. (laughs) opening for a 13-year-old. Lionel even told him soon after they met to start discussing this charity single, the idea of me and you even being in the same city at the same time is pretty ridiculous. So I guess they were kind of miles apart socially, didn't really know each other. The other more plausible version of how Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones came into the mix is that Ken Cragen called in Quincy Jones, who again was super producer extraordinary produced thriller the biggest album in the world what more do you need he worked with everybody frank sinatra duke ellington and the
2: rest and the rest
1: <laughs> so when ken craigen called quincy quincy was like well what if i try to get michael and within 30 minutes michael had signed on and agreed to help co-write the song too so Quincy decided to take some time off from doing music for his film production debut, The Color Purple, which also won. Everything this guy's touched has won a boatload of awards, won a bunch of Oscars or nominated for, I think, 11 Oscars, uh, to lend a hand to the project that would become We Are the World. And he talked about how he got the gig in an interview with Yahoo Music. He said, quote, I think I was chosen to produce We Are the World because I'd produced an album for Donna Summer a couple years earlier. On that album, we had a track called State of Independence that needed a choir. I wanted the best choir I could get, so about a third of the artists on We Are The World were on that track, so I was on familiar ground. If I hadn't worked individually with over half these singers before, there's no way I would have signed on. That Donna Summer song is wild. Do you know it? State of Independence?
2: No, but I love the idea of Jim Vangelis being involved in We Are The World, and I have revis- uh, I've, I've retconned it in my head so that now he did all the synth programming to it, which is not true yes
1: Uh, Vangelis the composer who wrote the Chariots of Fire theme can you
2: hum that hum that please also Blade Runner I mean like the guy was just a a, a synth a true synth wizard
1: yes so that song was written by Vangelis and the chorus that Quincy's talking about features Lionel Richie Dionne Warwick Diana Ross Michael Jackson Brenda Russell Christopher Cross (laughs) Diane Cannon James Ingram Kenny Loggins, Peggy Lipton, who Quincy Jones was married to at the time, the actress Helpful. from Twin Peaks, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Patty Austin, Michael McDonald, and Stevie Wonder, and the song ranks as one of Brian Eno's favorite recordings. Did you know that? I didn't. I didn't. State of Independence, yeah, I didn't. I I'd never heard this song before researching this episode. You know,
2: I just I I'm fully like I know there's like a whole strain of what i am trying to call non-racistly like middle-class black RB that i really am not super familiar with like luther vandross and some of the stuff through mm. the 80s i don't know who james ingram is other than the I guy the guy who yeah. did somewhere out there with linda ronstadt from an american tale oh yeah but he had hits like, I wikied him, because that was one of the names I didn't recognize, and then I looked him up, and I, and I was like, oh, this guy had fits. a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also forgot who Kim Carnes was. Oh, Betty davis Yeah. Song Whips. Yeah. Great song.
1: A song was written by Jackie DeShannon. Did you know that? I didn't. I didn't. Well, her original version's weird. It's like a Dixieland thing. Oh, my. Yeah. Mm. But it's Jackie DeShannon. She's cool. <laughs> but yeah, this Donna Summer song with this insane chorus, it's kind of a waste of talent, because on the record this chorus of all those huge names i just mentioned it sounds like a midi chorus like it <laughs> it sounds like it could be anybody yeah i don't understand why they went through all that trouble uh during a spate of insane 2018 interviews Quincy Jones accused Michael Jackson Of jacking the bass line from this song State of Independence for Billie Jean
2: Interesting
1: Which I can kind of hear Amusingly, during the sessions for We Are The World Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates Bumped into Michael Jackson when he was hiding In the bathroom, which we will get to (laughs) later And according to Daryl Michael immediately apologized to him For ripping off the I can't go for that, no can do bass line For Billie Jean And according to Daryl Hall, Michael said, I hope you don't mind that I stole that. And I was like, what? You did a good job of stealing it because I didn't even notice. I guess he was referring to the intro, kind of a pumping bass line. That was in the bathroom. There weren't many places to go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of hear that, actually. The do, 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 do,
2: do, do. Yeah. Or it's just like the default sequencer preset that came on every synthesizer from the 80s. <laughs> like Uh, I, you know, every time you talk about Michael Jackson hiding in the bathroom, I'm reminded of one of my other favorite musical anecdotes of all time, which is that one time, uh, Steve Perry was visiting, uh, Van Halen and, um, backstage and a food fight broke out and the, the debauchery and the severity of the food fight was such that Steve Perry, uh, retreated to the bathroom in tears. And, uh, I, I think it was in Rolling Stone, but the line that forever has haunted me is a food fight erupted. That left Steve Perry in the bathroom, covered in guacamole, crying, 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 crying softly to himself in the bathroom, comma, covered in guacamole. (laughs) It's just the funniest (laughs) mental image. He's such a sweet boy. Uh, In any event, the whole production was ramped up once Quincy Jones and his uh, impressive Rolodex were brought into the mix, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Commercial break. (laughs) Masterful. Uh after news broke throughout uh I don't know whatever the industry warren of rat tunnels was the 1980s music industry uh Irving Azoff ascended from hell to tell everyone <laughs> uh Ken Cragan did most of this actually uh Harry belafonte called him a day or two after their first talk and said have you thought about this thing that I pitched and Ken told him in an all-time rejoinder. Well, I I have a song written by Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, and Stevie Wonder. Quincy Jones is producing, and Kenny Rogers, Kim Carnes, and Lindsey Buckingham have all agreed to be on it. To which Harry Belafonte presumably said, oh, you have it handled then. So Ken is cooking, as you wrote. (laughs) Hold up. Hold up. Let him cook. Uh, Ken later told the mirror. On the 2nd of January, less than four weeks before the session, I decided I'm going to get two artists a day, and I'm going to work from the top of the record charts. I already had Michael, who was number one. Lionel was maybe number three. Prince was number two. My idea was, by the time I got into bed, I would add two artists until I got to 15 to 18 artists. Uh, And once he got Bruce Springsteen, he... Didn't need to make any more calls because the word was out and people were calling him to ask to be on this song. and continued to the mirror. Lionel Richie has a great line. He says, you are who you hug. Oh, yeah. Everybody wanted to hug Bruce Springsteen. What is he? Uh, 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 Andrew Cuomo? <laughs> Too soon. Uh, everybody wanted to hug Bruce Springsteen. True. True. Everybody wanted to stand next to Bruce Springsteen. Bruce was the boss. And certainly with the Rockers, if Bruce is there, they want to be there. Uh, one person who did not want to hug Bruce. <laughs> Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Uh, no, there were there were uh, a number of people who did turn this down, Barbara Streisand, chief among them. She supposedly agreed, but her uh, team talked her out of it, and she uh, made amends years later by signing on for the 2010 remake of We Are the World to Benefit Victims of the Haitian Earthquake. Was that the same Haitian earthquake that Wyclef Jean defrauded uh, in an attempt to defraud? I believe so, yes. Uh, great Legacy. Uh Eddie Murphy supposedly turned them down because he was busy recording party all the time. <laughs> Which Eddie Murphy, man, made a lot of bad choices in his career. Vampire in Brooklyn, uh what did we just Pluto do? Pluto Nash. Yeah, Pluto Nash. What did we just talk about that he turned down? Uh Oh do, to make Holy Man Rush Hour. He turned Rest, down yes. Rush Hour. Uh, he turned down, we are the world. Murphy later said that, uh, when he realized what he'd done, he quote, felt like an idiot. Agreed. Linda Ronstadt was supposed to come, but she had the flu and her doctor wouldn't let her fly. In her place, they got Dionne Warwick, who was able to get the night off of her gig in Vegas, courtesy of hotel impresario, Steve Wynn. Uh, David Byrne. <laughs> can you imagine David Byrne on this song? <laughs> He would like mouth noises. Yeah, David Lee Roth and James Brown were desired guests, but apparently couldn't be reached. David Lee Roth on this song would have been <laughs> hilarious.
4: Oh, <Hi-ya! laughs> damn it, Ethiopian children! I'm only gonna give it to you one more time, Better! <laughs>
2: Just <laughs> strutting around with like a a, a bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> That would have sent Michael Jackson to the bathroom in terror. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) Perhaps most famously, Madonna was not included in We Are The World. Uh, There are many different accounts for why this is, depending on which PR team is being interviewed at any given time. The most familiar is that Madonna had just had her first number one with Like A Virgin and that the session would have conflicted with dates on her virgin tour. Phrasing. Because of this, her management wanted to strike while the iron was hot and told her to turn down the opportunity to sing on it. But in 2020, Niall Rogers, who produced all of her best albums in the early, uh, early stages and who was close to her, said on SiriusXM that she was intentionally snubbed, never asked to participate in USA for Africa. He said, Madonna wasn't invited to sing on the recording And it was a slap in the face Because everybody was in Los Angeles For the American Music Awards And it was really sort of not nice (laughs) Does he write the lyrics for Chic? (laughs) Uh, I know she felt bad But when Madonna uh, performed at Live Aid, she didn't participate in the live version of We Are the World, which featured, that live performance featured many people who hadn't been on the original recording. So maybe there was some intentional snubbing there. Um, She was just like, well, if you don't want me then, you don't want me now. Like, I don't want to do this. I think she, no. What do you think about Madonna? (laughs) You know what I think about Madonna. I mean, look, she later tried to compensate by adopting a number of children from the country and... Then using, um, you know, racial slurs on social media, dressing like a sub-Saharan tribeswoman for award shows, giving meandering reminiscences about her own life at a tribute for Aretha Franklin. Um, She's an ally. What can I say? Change begins at home. Um, Anyway, uh, Ken Cragen reportedly turned down 50 people, uh, thereabouts, who wanted to be part of it. Most notably, John Denver. Oh, that's like shooting a puppy. How do you turn down old Johnny D <laughs> with, a, with a suitcase full of Muppets with him? He's probably yeah, like... man. Ken told the mirror John Denver had been a client of mine. I knew him well, and he was a tremendous activist for hunger and poverty in America. Presumably anti not for uh, Quincy felt that it would skew the song too far towards the commercial pop area. Yeah, but not Kim Carnes. The biggest one hit wonder on that. And he wasn't that hot at the time. His well, big heyday go. was in the 70s. Yeah, that's the real answer. He was right. Quincy was right, but I felt really bad about it. If I had to do it again, I certainly would have seen that John would be a part of it. Kim Carnes so hot right now. <laughs> uh Ken also regrets not booking Joan Baez, who he felt along with Bob Dylan, had in fact birthed the very notion of the charity single. With her music related activism in the 60s Which is correct Considering Bob Dylan abandoned that scene As soon as it sprang board him to fame While Joan Baez continued Her legacy of activism Uh, So 45 musical icons on this But not Prince Which we will get to And Huey Lewis Huey Lewis is there too And his back And his back It's his whole group was it Clover? Was it the same guys who became who who backed Elvis Costello on My Name Is True? I think some of them, not all. Yeah, uh, we love Huey Lewis here at TMI, friend of the we pod. Do. Huey Lewis. Well, we do, uh, but I I still,
1: although he does nail his solo, the <laughs> fact that he got it over Smokey Robinson, really, and Ben Mittler, and uh, I guess those are the two most
2: deserving of a solo. Did you it, imagine but. '80s Lou Reed on this? Huh? Whoa. <laughs> Whip it on me, (laughs) Jim. It can't be any worse than 80s-era Bob Dylan. True. I'm kind of surprised Clapton wasn't on this. Is it because of the whole openly racist thing in the 80s? No, it's America. It's USA for Africa.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. The only Uh Brit on here is Bob Geldof, and they invited him because I think they kind of felt like... I I think they invited him at the last minute. They invited him to come and, like, address the crowd. And once he was there, (laughs) it was like, do you want to sing? That's... I believe that's how it went down,
2: but... (laughs) Uh, anyway, so they have a, a they have a, a cast list, if you will But they don't have a song um, The official story was that Stevie Wonder was supposed to help write it with Michael and, and Lionel But this didn't happen um, Supposedly because uh, Stevie had to do stuff like Lady in Red, the soundtrack to that um, But probably most likely due to the fact that Stevie has no concept of time And does things on his own internal schedule and logic which can be summed up as whenever he feels like it. Yeah. Uh, there was a 2020 article on AARP.com that uh, said Stevie left town right before they were supposed to begin writing and didn't come back until the day before recording sessions were supposed to start. Which, in his defense, is actually a pretty generous timeline on Stevie time. Because yeah. it wasn't like... It wasn't he after. It, yeah, or he call, and he, he called that one dude and was like, "Uh, you have 10 minutes to write me another verse for... Uh, was it Pastime Paradise on Sunday? I think of so, yeah.
1: Also, I mean, this is the, the, the same guy who called his manager 30 minutes before he was supposed to be on stage right. in Seattle and was
2: like, I'm leaving my house in LA right now. <laughs> so Stevie was out. <laughs> Michael and Lionel uh, instead went to the, uh, the Jackson family estate in Encino, um, a cursed place, uh, no doubt. Sorry, now I'm editorializing. Um and, but, and this is so funny to me. Imagine if you will, and I hope they were sitting on the floor cross-legged for this. Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson listening to a bunch of assorted national anthems from across the world. <laughs> USA. <laughs> to get the proper England, fame, frame of mind. Yeah, what uh Deutschland über alles, Ruh <laughs> Uh Russia, national anthem. Yeah, whatever the that Marseille. is. That, the tetris theme song um okay that's Canada. A more, that's amore uh what is the australian national anthem oh we've got big balls by acdc uh what's the what's uh, oh i think it's yyz by rush is the canadian national anthem this is going to get playfully racist uh <laughs> Um, Richie said, we put all of that into a pot in our heads and came up with a rhythm that sounded familiar, like a world anthem. We didn't want a normal sounding song. We wanted bombastic, the biggest thing you got. They worked on this song every night for a week in Michael's bedroom, kept company by Michael's albino python, uh, which unsurprisingly scared the shit out of sweet Lionel Richie. Um, he, <laughs> he kept hearing the sounds of, of a, of a, of, I don't know, what does a python sound like as it slithers around a room? <laughs> well, I guess hissing, yeah. Um, he, he told the Independent later, I'm on the floor in Michael's bedroom. I don't think he had a bed. He just slept on the floor. There's a bunch of albums around the wall, and I hear over my shoulder, <laughs> there was a damn python, a boa constrictor, a python, who cares what the hell it was? It was a big ass, ugly ass snake. I was screaming, and Michael's saying, There he is, Lionel, we found him. He was hiding behind the albums. I said, you're out of your freaking mind. It took me about two hours to calm my ass back down. You found Barry. (laughs) You found Aunt Diana. What was his his pet python's name? You found Jermaine. (laughs) You found Marlon. (laughs) Lionel, you found little Janet. But the writing sessions were uh, marred, contentious. I guess they just had different working schedules. Lionel's writing method amazingly was to drive around LA's empty freeways in the middle of the night at like 4am and write. Whereas Michael liked to wake up at 530am to daydream in the studio. Um, but they bonded. I, I shouldn't have said contentious. They got along. They sang. They danced. And they dicked around and Quincy Jones there tapping his watch. Uh, <laughs> he wrote in his memoir, Michael and Lionel were there hanging, sitting around talking about Motown and old times. I said, my dear brothers, we have 46 stars coming in less than three weeks, and we need a damn song. (laughs) The initial kernel of the song came from Michael, stemming from a rhythm that he used to uh, sing to his sister Janet. In his autobiography, Moonwalk, he writes, Janet, what do you see when you hear this song? She said, dying children in Africa. He said, you're right. That's what I was (laughs) dictating from my soul. That is a world that is a new high in celebrity hagiography. Janet, what do you think when I sing you this rhythm? Dying children in Africa. You're right. My god, incredible. All-time quote. Then uh he recorded as classic Michael Jackson and I urge anyone to go check these out. Recorded a demo all by himself. You got to go listen to the Beat It uh demos oh, yeah. that have you heard you've heard those, right? Yeah where he's just, like, beatboxing and has, like, singing every single individual note of chords and harmonies. Incredible. Uh, so he surprised Quincy and Lionel with a demo that he did in a single night. And then they had to come up with the lyrics. They were aiming for simple, easy to sing, and memorable. They'd snuck in a Beatles reference with the nod, love is all we need, which uh, I believe Billy Joel sings. He hated it. He hated that line. He hated most of the
1: things about this song. He hated the key. <laughs> he hated the line. He thought he got a well, lame he's line. he's a tough
2: key. He's a tough key. I mean, we'll get to that later. But again, and just pitch perfect. Gotta go watch the video. Billy Joel looks like he should have a can of Schlitz in his hand and a shiner. <laughs> he's got like a five o'clock shadow. He does not look like he can be seen folding up his he's lyric sick. sheets. In like in, in, <laughs> in the background of someone else singing. Just kind of staring around, by his own admission, eating sandwiches and drinking beer during these sessions.
1: He has the flu. (laughs) (laughs) He's jet lagged. He's flown in from New York especially for it. He still has his scarf
2: on. Christy Brinkley's in the other room with a bunch of much more famous, much more attractive people. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, not that it ever mattered to him because he bounced right from her to another another model light years out of his league. Um, they were still finalizing the words for what would ultimately become the lyrics to We Are the World the night before the first sessions began, finishing it in one two and a half hour burst. They changed We're Taking Our Own Lives to We're Saving Our Own Lives, which... Good choice, guys. (laughs) And they changed. There's a chance we're taking to there's a choice we're making so that they wouldn't be making it about them. Yeah, that's a
1: weird line in the documentary that accompanied We Are the World. Jane Fonda, who hosts the documentary, (laughs) likens that line that uh, we're saving our own lives. So quote from John Dunn. Uh Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Sure, man. (laughs) Okay, man. Famously, the recording date for We Are The World was immediately after the American Music Awards on January 28th, 1985. Lionel Richie was hosting that awards show, so it was a long day for him. Quincy Jones figured that scheduling it on the day of a big... (laughs) glitzy showbiz award show was the only time he could get three dozen rock stars together in the same place on the same night not for charity but on a night where we all got together to pat each other on the back cool um but at least it's better karma than a regular award show after party (laughs) the location of the session was a closely guarded secret as ken Cragen later said If that address shows up anywhere, we've got a chaotic situation that could totally destroy the project. The moment a Prince, a Michael Jackson, a Bob Dylan drives up and sees a mob around that studio, he will never come in. And so as a result, not even the artists were told until the very last minute on the day of the session. Uh, The address that was on the official invite that each of the artists received from Quincy was blacked out at Ken Craig's request. Uh, It's just worth noting that obviously... They would never get away with this in the social media smartphone age. I just think it's so interesting that they could pull this off. Uh, just in case the word got out, several dozen security guards swarmed around the perimeter of Hollywood's a and Studios, which was a former film studio built by Charlie Chaplin. And now it's the Jim Henson Studios with a statue of Kermit the Frog out front dressed as Charlie Chaplin's character, the Tramp. Over 150 audio technicians spent the afternoon setting up a complex AV system, and, you know, the star power for the song ensured that it would be the most well-documented occasion in showbiz history at this point. And just before 9 p.m., the stars began to arrive from across town at the AMAs, and it's sweet. Artists who were competitors over there at the awards show were now compatriots. At least that's how they tried to spin it in the documentary. Uh, Aware that doing a charity record in black tie kind of sent the wrong kind of message, Quincy Jones urged casual attire, saying, After the American Music Awards, we all change out of our clothes because we don't want to make a Hunger record in tuxedos. (laughs) The man is away with words. (laughs) Also, very good point. Very good point. And he also famously issued a friendly warning to all concerned with a sign hung above the studio entrance reading, check your egos at the door. And Stevie Wonder was on hand to act as a greeter, joking to each new arrival that if the song wasn't recorded in one take, he and Ray Charles would personally drive everyone home. (laughs) He loves that. He loves that. Yeah. Oh, Stevie. And parking was such a tricky situation and just space in the studio was such a premium that one high-ranking music executive acted as valet out front just so he could hang out who was it Uh, a guy named ron oberman who was the guy who brought david bowie to america for the first time david bowie spent the night at his parents suburban house in silver spring maryland i interviewed his brother for my david bowie podcast yeah, he was a big deal A&R guy at Mercury Records. And I don't know what he was doing around the uh, We of the World time. But yeah, speaking of cars, there's a great story about Bruce Springsteen. So many great Bruce Springsteen stories involving cars. Uh, <laughs> one of many great Bruce stories we'll touch on in this episode. On the night of the recording, many stars arrived at the studio in stretch limos. Bruce arrives solo, pushing his way through the crowd in a leather jacket with cut-off gloves. And he proudly tells Ken Cragen and some of the producers, I got a great parking space over by La Brea. (laughs) He's parked his rental car in a supermarket parking lot and walked over. Love that. Good Ken Craven him. later marveled in the mirror. Everybody else came by limo. Bruce drove himself, parked across the street and walked through the crowd. And they didn't even realize it was Bruce coming through. I love that. I, it's so good. And other versions of the story have him driving his own pickup truck. But I think that was actually Kenny Rogers who did, in fact, drive his own
2: Dodge pickup truck to the uh, the <laughs> session, which straight, is also very good. Straight from his chicken, his local, <laughs> after where he was checking the franchise, uh, the local Kenny Rogers Roasters franchise. <laughs>
1: But this Bruce Springsteen thing is all the more endearing considering that he just finished the latest leg of his Born in the USA tour the night before in Syracuse, his 15th gig that month, and he had flown in especially for this. So, the man's got stamina, and he did not disappoint. In his exhaustive liner notes of the session, writer David Breskin describes Bruce Springsteen thus... Everyone looks like himself at the session, but Springsteen somehow more so. Blue shirt hanging out of his black jeans, open black leather jacket, black high-top boots with green canvas trim and laces cinched, four eyelets from the top, black leather fingerless gloves, which you won't take off all night, and a face of five o'clock shadow. And Bruce's vocal part, I think it's one of the best of the bunch. I've seen a lot of people say that it's terrible online. I'm never going to go on record saying anything that Bruce Springsteen does is terrible, but... uh, (laughs) I thought I thought he's got the he, soul.
2: He's got the yeah. Passion. He brings a different energy to it. I'll say. Part of it is the tour. I never knew when I was watching, like hearing about this before, that he had come off of a heroic tour. But yeah, fifteen he's, gigs that month. Yeah, that's 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 wild. And also, fifteen Bruce Springsteen gigs is like six months of regular person gigs. Right, yeah. So to like and show I- up and then just hunger, dunger dang your way through a song about dying Africans. Like God, love him.
1: Well, he asked Quincy Jones for some direction, and Quincy said that I want you to be like the cheerleader of this chorus. Which, of course, that's the role Bruce Springsteen was born to play. And he literally worked up a sweat doing this chorus. You can hear it <laughs> on the take. I swear he did. That was one take too. That he nailed it. Of course it was. Go- what a pro. Going back. Oh yeah. And going back to Breskin's piece. Springsteen rolls up his sheet music and sticks it in the back pocket of his jeans. His voice is rough, pained, gone, reduced to essence, perfect for this part. When he sings, his veins jump out of his hands. Two character lines cut across the bridge of his nose, and he exhales twice, hard after each phrase. After a nearly flawless first take, he humbly asks Quincy, something like that? And Quincy can only laugh, exactly like that.
2: Yes. There's so many great Springsteen in the studio stories. One of my favorites is uh he was on one of the many people who was on Warren Zevon's last record and oh, he plays wind, a yeah. yeah, he plays a solo a guitar solo on on a on a song and when he got done playing the guitar solo, the amp died. Oh yeah. Like, the that. amp the amp like caught fire and died. And it was like I can go to Valhalla now. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: after his verse in the session for We Are the World, I guess the entire crowd of musical dignitaries burst into spontaneous applause, which was not something they did easily, yeah, especially dude. Diana Ross. Yeah. Quizzy Jones later described Bruce as, quote, one of the hardest working cats I've ever met in my life. I kept waiting for him to get tired and sit down and rest, but he kept saying, want me to do it again? So, in closing, Bruce Springsteen is the best. Prince, on the other hand, was less of a team player. He performed at the AMA's that night, delivering an iconic version of Purple Rain that's gone on to become one of the most legendary performances of that awards show ever. But he, uh, to use the British phrase, couldn't be arsed to do We Are the World. He declined to participate in the project for reasons that are disputed, though widely assumed to be part of his ongoing rivalry slash feud with Michael Jackson, which raged throughout the decade.
2: I feel like you got to take this. This this is... (laughs) yeah i mean you posit that they were too alike in certain ways you know uh they were born in in the midwest to devout religious families they're incredibly disciplined men in their pursuit of art and music um and and devolved into drug addicted reclusism in their stately xanadus uh (laughs) prince plays much better bass though Um, yeah, I mean, Prince, uh, Prince's first record is for you in 1978, uh, which is just a year before MJ comes out out into his own with off the wall and (laughs) Prince's animosity can probably be traced to the end of 1982 when Thriller came out in December, just two months after Prince's 1999, uh, came out and Prince probably should have taken that personally because Thriller crushed everything under its boot hill, but, um, yeah uh michael jordan gif and i took that personally (laughs) there was another incident uh, they were there's a james brown concert in 1983 and james called michael jackson on stage and michael did his whole james brown dance routine that had been beaten into him by his father uh, since childhood (laughs) and um and then michael calls prince up on stage and cruelly someone hands him a left-handed guitar uh which is just you know setting yourself setting up for failure and and then kind of does some dancing and knocks over something off, on I stage oh he knocks over this giant street lamp
1: prop like oversight have you ever seen this clip no I haven't oh please pull it up right you I can't how have you never seen this I don't want
2: to see Prince sad
1: <laughs> he that's the thing he's not even sad he just looks like he doesn't care he's just well, like all right fine
2: like <laughs> but then he would. Then he would seethe later. (laughs) Just a great Quincy Jones line in it. Quincy claimed that Prince was so mad about this that he then tried to run over Michael in the parking lot with his limo, which is funny to me because it presupposes Prince was either driving or had a driver who would commit vehicular manslaughter of the biggest star in the world at Prince's behest. I don't know which of those two are funnier. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah. Michael Jackson loved this clip so much that he had it on film and he
1: would watch it at screenings at his home when guests came over and he would laugh and and just cackle about, to use his words, what an ass Prince had made of himself. I can't believe you've never seen this. So that was the background. That was the context. (laughs) Anyway, uh, it would stand to reason that Prince maybe wouldn't want to work with Michael, but Ken Cragen claimed that Prince didn't come to the Wheel of The World session because he was nervous to work with other people. Speaking to The Mirror, Ken Cragen said, one of the reasons Prince didn't turn up is because he always recorded alone and not with an engineer. He would go into the studio, do his own engineering, and record every instrument and sing, and no one else would be there. And Lionel Richie said something similar during his appearance on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen. He claimed that Prince would only sing on the track if he was alone in a separate room, and that just wasn't in the spirit of the event. However, Prince's protege, Wendy... Mel Voin are you familiar with her
2: yeah she's the she's uh the guitarist who did the Purple Rain intro uh live it was like her some inordinately short amount of time in the band that she she nailed that well she offered a different reason
1: she told author Alan Light good guy friend of mine uh for his book Let's Go Crazy Prince and the Making of Purple Rain Prince felt like that song was horrible and he didn't (laughs) want to be around all those motherfuckers Uh, supposedly Prince sent his manager to tell Quincy Jones that he wouldn't sing on the song but he'd play guitar and Quincy's response I don't need him to play guitar And in another retelling, Prince himself called during the middle of the session from whatever nightclub he was at, which I love, and was like, yeah, "I'll play guitar if you want." And Quincy said the same thing. I don't. I don't need you to do that. Uh, and in yet another petty story, there's a legend that Prince bailed on the Wheel of the World session because Bob Geldof, who we'll see is not especially chill, called him a creep and hurt Prince's feelings. <gasps> Geldof.
2: That's rich coming from a guy like Geldof, who looks like yes. a poster child for sleep deprivation and inbreeding.
1: What was the Russell Brand joke? Uh, it makes sense that David Bob Geldof knows so much about famines. He's been dining out <laughs> on Live Aid for 35 years. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So the world may never know the truth of why Prince didn't turn up at the We of the World session. He never told his side of the story publicly. However, we do know what he got up to that night instead of singing on a charity record. <laughs> I love this. Prince's manager was very really wary of the bad press once it got out that Prince refused to do this charity single. So he started a rumor in the middle of the AMAs where he would just given an amazing performance, mind you, that Prince was starting to come down with something. He was feeling sick. Uh, instead of going home, Prince went to a nightclub on Sunset Strip called Carlos and Charlie's. And while there... Two of the 20 bodyguards that accompanied him that night took a swipe at a photographer and they were arrested in the resulting scuffle. So instead of singing about feeding Africa, Prince supposedly was busy bailing his two overzealous bodyguards out of jail that night. And this incident was later parodied on Saturday Night Live in a sketch featuring Hulk Hogan and Mr. T as bodyguards and Billy Crystal as Prince. ooh, uh, <laughs> Singing a song called I Am The World. Just, that's that's medium funny.
2: Was it Crystal and Blackface, like he loved doing? I would ass- I would assume so, yes.
1: Uh, in the end, Prince contributed a track to the full-length USA for Africa album that accompanied the release of the We Are The World single. And so that was kind of his way of doing something. And Huey Lewis took his solo on We Are The World, which, as we'll get to, I have thoughts about. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite anecdote from the Michael Jackson Prince feud was from the rehearsals for the This Is It tour in 2009, the tour that Michael died in the middle of rehearsals of. Uh, The tour director, Kenny Ortega, was worried about Michael because he wasn't sleeping. And Michael informed him that God channels ideas through him at night, which is why he stays awake. And Ortega told him, you know, that's cool, Michael, but you really need to rest. And without missing a beat, Michael replied, you don't understand. If I'm not there to receive these ideas, God might give them to Prince. (laughs) So this feud clearly, or whatever you want to call it, continued until Michael's dying day. But there was obviously a tremendous amount of respect between these two men, too. Before the Purple Rain Tour, Prince went to see Michael Jackson on the Victory Tour with his brothers, just to sort of scope him out. And Michael Jackson went to all four of Prince's shows at the Forum on the Purple Rain Tour. So clearly they were interested in what the other were doing. And while we're here, we have to talk about the ping pong incident. I know you love the ping pong incident.
3: (laughs)
2: Yeah, they found themselves at the same recording studio. Prince was working on his somewhat misbegotten follow-up to Purple Rain, Under the Cherry Moon. Uh, Jackson on his perhaps even more misbegotten film, Captain EO. And there they started playing ping pong. And Prince, you know, Michael, tremendous dancer. uh, Tremendous physical physical singer and everything. But Prince was like a high school basketball star. Yeah, no. And apparently also a vicious ping pong player <laughs> Jackson fumbled his paddle uh, While Prince was You know going hard And Prince supposedly yelled Did you see that He played like Helen Keller Oof. I would cry if Prince Compared my ping pong playing to The most famous blind person In American <laughs> culture Non Stevie Wonder or Ray Charles category Um
1: Oh, there's also the aggressive slap-based story, have which I believe you aggressive-
2: have you have recounted on this podcast. Have before? I? No, I I've never on here. You know this story, though. Right? You've told you have told me this story, but I, oh, that's okay. why I think it's it, it was on this podcast, but it might have just been on Twitter. I think it was just yeah, I think it was just you and I. <laughs> uh, yeah, Will I am
1: was in Las Vegas and knew Michael was out there. I was like, hey, I'm gonna go see Prince tonight. Do you want to come? I got good seats, like right in the front. And Michael's like, oh, okay, sure. And then Prince from the stage sees that Michael is. Sitting right there in front, and he walks off the stage, just gets right in his face, and plays what Will. I am is described as aggressive slap bass right in Michael's face. And the next day at breakfast, Michael was talking with Will. I am, he's like, You see, Prince, that Prince, he's always been a meanie,
2: is the <laughs> phrase he used. Oh boy, yeah, there's something so sad and Dickensian about their respective ends, just like propped up by drugs so that they could go out and keep. Doing this thing that they'd been driven to by their distant fathers.
1: How much was Prince driven? Because obviously with Michael, with Joe, uh, all the abuse as a kid. That certainly I don't think it was as role. bad,
2: but I think Prince's dad wasn't. Or am I confusing him with Billy Corgan or Billy Joel? <laughs> no, somebody's dad was like, "You'll never be as good a guitarist as me." Um, was that Mariah Carey's mom? Was like, well, yes. Singing Verbatim told her, and- "You will never be the singer that I will." Um. Oh, yes, I was wrong. Prince's father said in 1991 that he named his son Prince because he wanted Prince to do everything I wanted to do. Prince was not fond of this name and wanted people to instead call him Skipper. You're you're kidding me.
1: As a kid or as an adult? As a kid. I don't know which is... Oh, okay.
2: Three separate citations of that on Wikipedia. Skipper.
1: Big Gilligan's Island fan or... (laughs)
2: apparently oh yeah his father threw him out i forgot about that right yes
1: Yes. Yeah. yes. oh boy but again there was mutual respect between prince and michael uh, following michael jackson's death in 2009 prince told the french newspaper le monde we're always sad to lose someone we love
2: as you meditate on that we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages If Prince really did have stage fright, though, he wouldn't have been the only person who did. Bob Dylan, uh, famously an interesting presence on stage, (laughs) has an interesting presence in the We Are the World video. Uh, Would you describe him as looking confused? Uh, Disassociating, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he was uh, weirdly... I want to say weirdly, but I guess maybe not. It makes sense, but he was the person that everyone else was like extremely uh, jazzed to see him, him and Bruce um, Uh, and Ray. Yeah, and and Ray. Uh, Diana Ross saw him and jumped into his lap, which is which could not have gone well. uh, Diana Ross also greeted Stevie Wonder by approaching him and stroking his braids. So she doesn't have boundaries, except with people under her who are not allowed to make eye contact with her uh willie nelson and huey lewis backed bob dylan into a corner both talking at him about golf
1: (laughs) what do we what do we think about that bob dylan could not give less of a huey lewis you can see it in the documentary i think it was in uh david breskin's liner notes for this too huey lewis says to bob wow, it's like, you are the ball. It's really true. Some shots, man, you can just see them. They happen for you. And some, in the middle of the swing, you know it won't work. And they're talking like, Bob, do you play golf? And Bob says, I, I heard you have to study it, so no. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, he looks like he just wants to get out of the session from the moment he steps in.
2: Al uh yeah, went up to him and said, Bobby, in my own stupid way, I just want to tell you that I love you. And Bob Dylan just walked away from him, prompting Al Jarreau to burst into tears and cry, my idol, at a retreating Bob Dylan. Kim Carnes said he was easy to talk to, though. (laughs) Bruce Springsteen, another super fan, wrote in his memoir that Bob was the father of my country, uh, but... um, you know, Bruce Springsteen's a chill guy. He probably didn't lose his sh- too publicly about that. Um, in the documentary, there's a 10-minute clip of uh, Stevie Wonder at the piano trying to teach him his part because Quincy had to clear the studio for, uh, for Dylan to record his part. Um, and <laughs> Stevie's at the piano trying to teach Bob Dylan his part, doing a Bob Dylan impression to Bob Dylan... Uh, and then he goes up to the mic to try and record it. Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie are licking him on, and Quincy says, Just do your thing, man. That's something nobody can do better than you. Well, that's what they were saying, because Bob apparently, like, he was... Trying to
1: be like a real singer with when he was surrounded by all these other singers, and they were like, "No, you don't sound anything like Bob Dylan. We want you to just sound like you." And that's why they were all. And there's just this, this incredible ten-minute clip. So this this We Are the World documentary. It's like an hour long. Ten minutes of that hour <laughs> are Bob Dylan failing to nail the one line he's supposed to sing. And it's just him at the piano with Quincy Jones and Stevie Wonder. And Stevie Wonder and Quincy Jones are increasingly frantically singing their Bob Dylan impressions to him. Trying to get him to mimic his own voice. It's incredible. It's uh, it's really sad. Like, you can see him struggling. It's like the most human I've ever seen Bob Dylan.
2: Yeah. Except for, was he like shitting himself about The Last Waltz, too? He like know. revoked I uh, yeah know. i thought the thing with the last waltz he like revoked he refused he said that it was okay to film uh and then at the tail end of it he was like no like right before he went on stage he was like don't film me and they they were like i think scorsese or somebody was like just do it anyway and it wasn't like when he got out on stage it was if he saw the cameras it wasn't gonna stop but i think that's why he looks awkward in that i mean other than the fact that he's bob dylan he's an w- incredibly weird dude yeah, he looks
1: really self conscious, which, you know, makes sense considering that there are four <coughs> video cameras filming him as he's trying to sing and three still photographers.
2: He says, I don't think that's any good at all. You can erase that. Uh, and then he says, he asks Quincy, is that sort of it? Sort of like that. And Quincy hugs him and says, It's great. And Bob says, Well, if you say so. And for There's the first time. We're
1: making, <laughs> we're saving our own lives. It's true, we make a lot of
2: day. <laughs> Just you and me. That's more buckwheat than anything. They should have given a harmonica solo. Uh um, oh, actually, yeah, that would have been cool. Uh, and upon receiving that compliment from Quincy Jones, Bob Dylan smiled for the first time that night. Uh, and Springsteen, ever the cheerleader, gets on the mic and says, you sounded fantastic, Dylan, later. First thing he said when he got up to the mic. Bob later said uh, in an interview in 2020, People buying a song and the money going to starving people in Africa is, you know, a worthwhile idea. But I wasn't so convinced about the message of the song, to tell you the truth. I don't think people can save themselves, you know. Was this in his Christian phase? What era? 85. That would have been probably, like, right in transition, I think. Oh, yeah. Lionel said that uh, Bob Dylan was the one he was most nervous about actually showing up. Um, He said, when Bob says, I'll be there, you have to say to yourself, did he get the right day? The right time? (laughs) But Bob was one of the first people there. Uh, Steve Perry of Journey was the first, which if there's anything Steve Perry has, it's wanting to please energy and a (laughs) tremendous voice. Uh, Michael was the second uh, MJ, and uh, that led Quincy to announce God is with us. And Steve Perry hung his head and the sad walking away music from Charlie Brown played. (laughs) Uh, But even Michael Jackson was nervous when it came time to take the group photo for the for the sleeve of the single, which was going to be featured on the cover of Time magazine. He was nowhere to be found, and according to Ken Cragen, they found the King of Pop hiding in the bathroom, curled up on the countertop because he was so intimidated by the stars. Uh, Lindsey Buckingham, famously of Fleetwood Mac and cocaine, uh, ran into him in the bathroom, saying it kind of freaked Michael out. He was quite nervous. Just to be startled by someone walking in And I just nodded my head I'm imagining like super coked out Lindsay who's does like the backing vocals on um, The end part of the chain when they're doing Running in the shadows and he's like Run 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 <laughs> Just like kicks the door open In the bathroom he's got his farmer hat on and his little <laughs> acoustic electric guitar pl- Frantically finger picking And screaming and Michael Jackson Thinks he's a wizard curled up on the Famica <laughs> Lindsay just rails a huge line of coke and goes back in. Um, Billy Joel would remember Michael Jackson as sort of a bizarre presence in the studio, frequently wandering off to, quote, a remote part of the studio with his makeup kit. And he kept, like, putting his nose on because I think the tip of his nose was kind of falling off and he kept dabbing at it with makeup or smearing it with something. That is so sad. My God. But you know, MJ is pretty good spirits. He's dancing, he's laughing when he flubs a take, and um, he allowed Quincy to call him their private nickname in public, Smelly, uh, which came from uh, their term for the a good funk or good you know good vibes on a track, a funky jam, Smelly Jelly. I also heard that it
1: might possibly have been a joke because uh, Michael was very fastidious with his appearance and very clean and so that was quincy's joke by calling him smelly because he was very much not so
2: some of the other stars were uh, perhaps a little nervous because they were cut off from the umbilicus of their support staff <laughs> you know the the small army of personal assistants and publicists and managers that are the lifeblood of any uh um uh, <laughs> i was gonna say of any celebrity but especially celebrities in the 1980s Uh, there's a strict policy against allowing anyone into the main studio who wasn't personally involved in the recording, except, except Doonesbury cartoonist, Gary Trudeau. (laughs) Give me a thousand guesses. (laughs) Yeah, right. A thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters could not come up with the name (laughs) Gary Trudeau. Pulitzer prize winning cartoonist, Gary Trudeau, though. First cartoonist to win a Pulitzer. He, uh. He was doing two weeks worth of Doonesbury strips about We Are the World. Am I correct? Am I am I correct in reading this? Bizarre. Yes, I think that was just like a, a farcical. yeah. Daryl Hall uh later told Esquire, everybody usually walks around with their assistant or their entourage, but you had to walk in the door yourself, just you, and be in this room with a lot of people like you, with your peers, many of whom I had never met, and vice versa. They had never met me. Thank you, Daryl. That is what that phrase means. Uh <coughs> it was What's the word? Slightly disconcerting. Two words. I'm a pretty self-sufficient guy, but I'm used to walking into a situation having some support around me. Daryl Hall sucks. Uh, Great singer. Real ass. I think. I assume. It was a tough interview. Was he? Yeah. He seems really full of himself. Yeah. Although, there's supposedly... Isn't there like a Lost album that he did with uh, Robert Fripp? Yes. Yes, there is. That whips. Um... The stars didn't know exactly who's going to be there, and uh, I don't know. It's kind of a cute, kind of a first-day-of-class vibes. Billy Joel hugs Michael Jackson. Kenny Loggins hugged Bruce Springsteen. Dinah Ross hugged Sheila E. Bob Dylan hugged no one except Quincy Jones. Daryl Hall added to Esquire. We were all like, whoa, what are we doing? Everybody had to figure out how to relate to each other. So everybody started to act like they were in eighth-grade chorus. It was the weirdest thing I'd ever experienced all these superstars whatever you want to call them we all turned into junior high school kids in chorus and Quincy became Mr. Jones that's Aww. how it shook out laughing like kids uh, Paul Simon walked in and asked where he could hang his coat <laughs> all four foot eight of Paul Simon they heard a they heard a meek squeaking uh, and looked down. <laughs> Kenny Rogers lifted up his foot, and there he was. I was going to say, lifted up his big-ass cowboy boot. The the rest of the friends and family were sent to the Charlie Chaplin Memorial Stownstage next door, watching the proceedings through huge video monitors. Uh, And it was quite the ticket. Each artist was allowed to invite five people. So the room was filled with 500 of LA's glitziest. Jane Fonda, Steve Martin, Dick Clark, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Sidney Poitier, Christy Brinkley, and Brooke Shields. Journalist David Breskin described the opulence in his session notes. The normal home of Soul Train and countless pop videotapings features couches, rugs, more than 25 tables with seatings of eight, two bars serving wine and beer, three catering stations laden with mountains of food, 125 folding chairs strategically placed before five video monitors and two huge movie screens, Kencha palms and ficus benjamina, plus two dozen flowering plants, azaleas and cyclamen. That's the most plants I've ever had to name in a damn podcast episode. Nine video games and a pool table for those who get bored. I just love that they
1: taped Soul Train in the same soundstage where Charlie Chaplin worked. What do you think the video uh, games were?
2: Pong, Frogger, Tapper, Ga- Galaga, Dig Dug. Ooh. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong, ET. <laughs> Uh, Bob Geldof ruins everything uh, They welcomed Bob into the studio Which is a mistake But only fair considering he was the man behind the charity Supergroup Band-Aid which helped inspired The whole USA for Africa thing God I hate Bob Geldof uh, Bob not known as being a Kind of go with the flow Sort of sit by the river kind of guy uh, Nearly Torpedoed the vibes when he saw The massive spread of food Laid out in the adjacent green room Someone had donated it, according to aforementioned journalist David Breskin's account. Several kinds of pasta salad, tortellini, lasagna, uh, something called baron of beef. the hell does that mean? That's what you call a Texas cattle rancher. (laughs) What is a baron of beef? A baron of beef originated
1: when Henry VIII was served a spit-roasted double sirloin beef. So it's two cuts of sirloin, like stitched together? He dubbed it Sirloin,
2: the Baron of Beef. It was Henry (laughs) VIII making a joke. (laughs) Henry VIII, borscht belt comedian. Um, (laughs) Potato skins, Parmesan chicken, fruit, 1,200 pounds of ice, two 12-foot dessert buffets, and breakfast at 3 a.m. A bad look for a hunger single. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but uh, Bob uh, Geldof thought that uh, the producers had spent money on this food instead of it being donated. And uh, started saying, you know, grabbed the mic in the green room and started ranting. You people are here eating all this food when there's people starving in Africa. When he was doing Band-Aid, he went out and got fast food for the uh, his crowd of assembled British A-listers and left that. Eventually, someone was able to calm him down and insist to him that they weren't partying and that the food had been donated. But he was upset. Uh, he was heard several times throughout the night muttering, I've never seen more millionaires in one room. Harry Belafonte made a strange comment, which actually I respect quite a bit, uh, in that night. He said, if a bomb hit this place, the business would have a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> um, he's not wrong. No, he's not. Uh, To kick off the session, Quincy Jones invited Geldof to say a few words, and Geldof, reading the room, said,
3: Well, maybe to put you in the mood of the song you're about to sing, which hopefully will save millions of lives, I think it's best to remember that the price for life this year is a piece of plastic seven inches wide with a hole in the middle, and that, I think, is an indictment of us. And I think what's happening in Africa is a crime of historical proportions and the crime is that the Western world has got billions of tons of grain bursting in its silos and we're not releasing it to people who are dying of hunger and I don't know if we in particular can conceive of nothing but nothing is not having a cardboard box to sleep under a minus 10 degrees, nothing is not having any drink to get drunk on, not having water. And you walk into one of the corrugated iron huts and you see meningitis and malaria and typhoid buzzing around in the air and you see dead bodies lying side by side with the live ones. And on a good day you can only see 120 people die slowly in front of you. And in some of the camps you see 15 bags of flour for 27,500 people. And it's that that we're here for. And I don't want to bring anybody down, but maybe it's the best way of making what you really feel, why you're really here tonight, come out through this song. So thanks a lot, everybody. Let's hope it works.
1: And so the session begins. The musical track had already been recorded about a week before the sessions. Uh, Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, Stevie Wonder, and Lionel Richie went to Kenny Rogers' private studio, personal studio, lion's share recording in Hollywood and recorded the backing track of the song. Uh, 13-year-old Emmanuel Lewis from TV's Webster (laughs) was also there at Michael Jackson's insistence, and the pair had a playful fight shooting popcorn kernels at each other in the middle of the session. And Emanuel Lewis (laughs) sat on Michael's lap during playback, (laughs) and they shared grapes.
2: There it is. Seriously. That's the worst thing I've ever heard in my damn life. Anyway, um, Emanuel Lewis was there, yeah, eating grapes from Michael Jackson's lap. One of many young boys who would eat fruit from Michael Jackson's lap throughout the years. Gross. Ah, that's so weird. Why did you put that f***ing image in my head, dude? I should have sent you into a vocal booth alone to record this. God, Ugh, I have to think about that. That's living in my
1: head right now. Why grapes? Somebody sent out for a banana, too. Ah, i it's, I'm, yeah. To record the instrumentation for We Are The World, they used some of the same musicians that Quincy Jones had employed on Michael Jackson's Off The Wall and Thriller, including Greg Fillinganes on keyboard, John Robinson on drums, he's the drummer in Rufus, Michael Bodeker on synthesizers, Palio da Costa on percussion, Lewis Johnson, who's the bassist for Brothers Johnson, Steve Picaro from Toto, Toto of Africa fame on synthesizers, <laughs> and David Peitch on synthesizers as well. Not as excited about him as I was about the guy from Toto. Uh, Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie recorded a guide vocal on the backing track which they sent to all the artists to help them learn the song and Quincy Jones mailed numbered cassettes to all the participants along with a note that read in part, my fellow artists in the years to come when your children ask what did mommy and daddy do for the war against famine, you can proudly say this was your contribution
2: Uh, Ken (laughs) Craig how many children, how many rich Nepo babies ask themselves that what did Mommy and Daddy do in the war against famine? Well, actually, I I'm sure applied. I'm sure their parents never shut up about it. I'm sure they never <laughs> had to ask. Actually, son, I was black ops in the Congo. Would you like to see my <laughs> necklace of ears? Were you in the sh- <laughs> <laughs> <sighs>
1: Uh, I don't know why I find this so funny. Ken Cragen's organization called the FedEx president personally and got them to agree to send these 45 cassette tapes out to their celebrities at no charge. So that's like like 300 bucks right there, they say.
2: Jesus, you do this today and uh, wouldn't get there in time.
1: Uh, FedEx agreed, but they refused any offer of credit because they were worried that if word got out that everyone would call and be like, yeah, can you send this for free? It's... Uh, it's for, for, charity. it's for charity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, despite all this effort of making this demo cassette and sending it out and even getting the fee waived by the FedEx president himself, most of the celebrities uh, didn't take time to listen to the cassette. And the first time they heard <laughs> the song, We Are the World, was when they got to the studio, which, once again, they couldn't be arsed to do the bare minimum.
3: Good for now, the them. recording...
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, The recording of the vocal parts began a little after 9 p.m. on the night of January 28th. Uh, Michael Jackson did his parts first, while most of the people were still at the AMAs across town. And uh, he and Quincy Jones debated until the very last minute about singing You and I or You and Me. And they decided that You and Me was more soulful and country-like, so they went with that. And then by around 10.30, the full session was underway, and Quincy Jones kicked things off by announcing, Okay, let's start chopping wood. And they did the big choir session first because they wanted to stop people from bouncing after they recorded their solo part, which is smart. So much of the session are just studies and, like, you know, group dynamics and psychology. It's like when you're if you're a, a, a multi-band show and you, your band goes first, and then you just leave right after.
2: <laughs> yeah. After, you, well, sometimes you can't if you have to borrow their amp.
1: Oh, yeah. So yeah, after Bob Geldof's introductory speech about the horrors of famine, everyone was handed a lyric sheet and a foldable chart of the music and guided to their bit of tape on the floor with their name scrawled on it. (laughs) And I love this. Before the session began, Quincy Jones decided where everyone would stand, working it all out on index cards, like a wedding planner doing a seating chart. And he put the tape on the floor with each singer's name on it. And in his autobiography, he explained, we didn't want to encourage decision making during the session. Any decision, where they would stand, what they would sing, when they would sing... We had to think it through and spell it all out. Over the years, I'd learned the hard way that once a group this size and this stature gets involved in making decisions, you're in trouble. Again, I mean, being a producer, I don't know how much of being a producer is about just like being a psychologist, you know?
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. But still, despite all this planning that went into the seating arrangement, or standing arrangement, I should say, thanks to Quincy Jones, not everyone was happy with their space on the bleachers. Diana Ross, who was basically like an aunt to Michael Jackson, dating back to 1969 when Motown and all their press releases claimed that she had discovered the Jackson 5, complained to Michael that she didn't like her spot, and Michael relayed this to Quincy, who moved her to a prime space in the front row between Michael and Stevie Wonder. God,
2: she's the worst.
1: was <laughs> not it that thing where like, after Michael Jackson died, it came out that... He was going to, like, if his mother had died before him, he was going to leave his kids to Diana Ross. And Diana Ross apparently, like, had no idea. Like, that was news to her. It was like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, she was the legal, like, the legal guardian of Michael's kids with, if his mother was incapacitated. Hmm. Like, could we all just do that? Like, if I had kids, could I just,
2: like... Send them on, to me?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, like, just on, like, my will. But, like, I you know, in the event of my death... Uh, Diana Ross is the legal guardian of my children. And then what if we all just agreed to do that? To send them to Diana Ross? (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) Or her estate? (laughs) Like, (laughs) care of. (laughs) If we had more clout, (laughs) I would execute a viral trend of getting Diana Ross's... She's still alive, right? She's still alive, yes. Okay, of getting people of a flood of paperwork going to Diana Ross's office thousands of people signing away their children to her well no i I, she didn't know it until after
1: michael died it was like you just like in your will just like you would think that they would have like had a discussion about it but apparently they never did and she just discovered that had michael's mother died she would have been next up to care for his kids and she was like that's news to me thank god that katherine jackson's
2: still alive that's a great premise for a children's movie is, is yeah. children suddenly showing up at Diana or a horror movie? <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't know if it's a children's movie. I think it's a horror movie. Children showing up at Diana Ross's house, unsolicited. National
1: Lampoon, Diana Ross vacation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> My god, you're gonna have a hard time editing this. We're like, what, not even halfway through? Oh, thank god. Okay, we are. <laughs>
1: Uh, where are we? The 21 soloists in order were Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Kenny Rogers, James Ingram, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, Willie Nelson, Al Jarreau, Bruce Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, Daryl Hall, Huey Lewis, Cyndi Lauper, Kim Carnes, Bob Dylan, and Ray Charles. And the A-list backing choir of 23, by my count, was filled out by the likes of Bette Midler, who didn't get a solo? Smokey Robinson, who didn't get a solo. The Pointer Sisters, okay, you can understand. Latoya Jackson, can understand. Latoya. The remainder, the remainder of the Jackson Five. Waylon Jennings, Harry Belafonte didn't Where get a was solo. Janet? Uh, maybe she was too young. I don't. Well, no, she was still doing. Rhythm Nation would have come out. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't know. Maybe she was. Yeah. Harry Belafonte, Lindsey Buckingham, Jeffrey Osborne, I don't know who that is, Sheila E., presumably filling the Prince Quotient, John Oates, who did not get a solo, even though Daryl Hall did, uh, and he didn't even get to stand next to Daryl, which I find really funny, and Huey Lewis's backing band, The News, and we can't forget Band-Aid architect Bob Geldof. Yeah, poor John Oates, he talked about his solo snub at an interview with Esquire. He said, I can't say I wasn't a little disappointed. I was obviously not worthy, but at the same time, it was cool. When Daryl and I performed together, Daryl's the lead singer. He's the guy. He's got an amazing voice, and of course, he deserved it, the solo. Quincy and Lionel and Michael knew exactly what they were doing. When you're dealing with those three guys, you're dealing with guys who really know how to make a record. That's very generous of them. I feel like. I'd like to do a little study of who got a solo versus who got stuck in the chorus, because this is just wrong to me. Bette Midler and Smokey Robinson didn't get a solo, but Huey Lewis did, and they let him bring all of the news?
2: (laughs) Hey, they're in that contract. You sign for Huey, you get the news. Like the shirt says, no Huey, no news, no thanks. (laughs) heigel for our band as a uniform the
1: only uniform we ever had bought us all that t-shirt
2: right before the pandemic and we never got to play shows I i
1: know i'm really sad uh, Lionel and Quincy Jones worked out who was going to sing all the solo spots and as co-writer Lionel Richie got first dibs on the opening line which he understandably took because he wanted to get it out of the way first But uh, because the parts were so brief they decided you need to have a really identifiable voice so that was part of the logic that went into thinking of who gets a solo mm. and to achieve the harmonic vocal overlap of the voices because the lines you they would sing parts of it together just so it all flowed nicely Lionel Quincy Quincy Jones and vocal arranger Tom Baylor worked hard to pair off people who sang in the same approximate range. And Baylor worked really hard. He did his homework. He bought several dozen records made by each of the artists and spent days leading up to the sessions just listening to them over and over again and try to get a feel for all the artists and their range. And for Baylor, this was the opportunity of a lifetime to pick and choose who sang what. I mean, it was just the ultimate chorus. But for Quincy Jones, it was stressful he likened it to quote putting a watermelon in a coke bottle (laughs) in other words too much stuff not enough space and I'm sure he was worried about offending people like you know sorry you don't get a solo Bette Midler but Huey Lewis needs his space I don't know why I'm taking this out. I love Huey Lewis. Yeah. He's, he's, and he Come does on. a great job on it too. I know, but I don't know. Smokey Robinson's lack of a solo was really puzzling to me. Sure. One version I heard of why he doesn't have one is that Smokey wasn't even part of the initial invitees and he just showed up. And obviously, no one wanted to be the one to kick out Smokey Robinson, so he stayed. Uh, the other version I've heard is that Smokey was slated for a solo, but then was called away on a family medical emergency before his part ever recorded. Considering they recorded all the solo spots between, like, four and eight in the morning, I'm guessing that isn't the case. <laughs> um but yeah, allegedly Huey Lewis' solo line, but if you just believe there's no way we can fail, was originally set aside for Prince. Which, to me, just makes it all the more puzzling that he got a solo because that was like a game-time call. Somebody looked around the room with a lineup of talent and pointed at him and said, You're up. Sorry,
2: Bette and Smokey. So I like I, your fixation that Bette Midler... Like, Smokey, I get. But, oh, the Divine Miss M. It's <laughs> a great singer. He should have given it to Lindsey Buckingham. Oh, well, yeah. He's got a distinctive voice. That's true. Yeah. Waylon Jennings, yeah. can you imagine? Oh, my God. He probably would have dropped a slur. <laughs> we'll talk more about <laughs> that later. Waylon, that's not even on the lyric sheet. Just already drunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know,
1: yeah, Huey Lewis, he does a great job. He knocks it out of the park. He's also one of the nicest guys I've ever interviewed, so I'll, I'll, I should stop slagging him off. Um, he had a cute thing to say about the We Are The World experience. It was an amazing night. Imagine meeting all those people. This is him talking to the AV Club in 2012. Most people don't get to meet those people in their career. Just to all be there in the same room, it was fantastic. I got to hang out with Bruce Springsteen a little bit. I haven't seen Bruce Springsteen in 10 years probably, but I know that we're pals in a way because of that. We shared that experience together.
2: I don't know if that makes you friends, Huey, but... (laughs) It's so much more adorable that it's like completely one-sided. Like if you ask, Bruce would probably be nice about it, but he'd be like, "Uh, no, I don't know him. (laughs) And and Huey Lewis is like, we're brothers bonded in blood.
1: Uh, You'll notice, speaking of people that seem slightly out of place in the USA for Africa lineup, uh, that among the musical icons is comedian Dan Aykroyd. (laughs) Uh, For years, I assumed he'd been invited in the wake of his Blues Brothers success, which earned him a number one album, and that kind of made him an honorary rock star. But apparently that's not true. He basically wandered into the recession. Uh, He told um, New Hampshire Magazine, quote, my father and I were interviewing business managers in L.A., and we walked into this office of a talent manager, and I realized we were in the wrong place. I was looking for a money manager, not a talent manager. I had managed myself at the time and always have. But the manager, presumably Ken Cragen, said, So, as long as you're here, would you like to come and join this We're the World thing? And I thought, how do I fit in here? Well, we did sell a few million records with the Blues Brothers, and in my other persona, I am a musician, so I showed up and was a part of it, but it was totally by accident. And I love this. A funny moment occurred later that night when Dionne Warwick heard unexplained voices in her headphones, which were the remains of another audio track that weren't supposed to be there. And it's a phenomenon in studio parlance called Ghost Voices. And she, when she said, oh, I got, I got Ghost Voices, Kenny Rogers chimed in, who are you going to call? Which is a medium funny Ghostbusters reference. Someone
2: had to do it.
1: Yeah. Sadly, Dan Aykroyd was out of the room at the
2: time and missed it. I wish Steve Martin would have come in with, a, uh, with his banjo. His banjo, and his bunny ears on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, many of the involved artists hated this song, which is fair. For good reason. It's not a yeah. good song, Um. but the day that they, uh, according to Ken Craig, in the day before they were set to record, one globally renowned rock group that he refused to name threatened to pull out because they thought it would harm their street cred. Who do we think that was, Jordan? I mean, the only group in here, well, there's the Pointer Sisters, they're
1: not a rock group, though, and he specifically said rock group. Hall and Oates is the news. Oh,
2: hmm, or Hall and Oates, I guess. Not really do we think though. which of those two men, those two groups, do you think were more desirous of protecting their "quote unquote" street cred? Well, I would say Hall and Oates, but they're not a rock group. Yeah, what's sad about the news? <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear about the news? Did you hear about the news? Um, ultimately Bruce Springsteen as he often does saved the day by telling this band I didn't come out here to walk away I came here to save lives I came here to feed people I'm gonna be there and sure enough the next day everyone showed up Um, except Prince except for Prince who did not care about feeding people uh he just cared about beating Michael Jackson
1: Um, <laughs> and bailing is
2: two of his 20 bodyguards out of jail for manhandling a photographer Billy Joel uh, it's you know the cute atmosphere in the studio but there there was uh people immediately started trying to play uh producer you know and and Billy Joel later said at Esquire I don't think anybody liked this song there was a lot of side <laughs> eye there were a lot of people looking at a, at the other person and I remember Cindy Lopper saying it sounds like a Pepsi commercial there were a couple of chuckles and a few grunts uh that was all coming from Bob Dylan, actually. <laughs> um, that was pretty much the consensus, I think. Um, yeah, the the, the the there's choice we're making. The Pepsi slogan at the time is choice of a new generation. Both Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson were Pepsi shill men. Um, Billy and Pepsi sent Michael Jackson's
1: hair on fire. They sure did. And started him on his painkiller journey. So in a way, Pepsi killed Michael Jackson. <laughs> Saved the uh untold number of african children
2: but (laughs) so really
1: with the butterfly effect on this is really
2: quite when lady justice takes both of those things into her (laughs) scales it's the egyptian heart and the feather (laughs) it's mummuary on tmi (laughs) wow we are now entering its proud fourth (laughs) month (laughs) We are tunneling up our own ass for this one. Um, Joel told Esquire, I looked at these lyrics. And, and, well, yes, he Joel, as you mentioned earlier, did not like the song and hated the lyrics that he was given. He looked at them and said, that's what I get the truth. And it was kind of a low part, too. I think a lot of people were trying to be virtuosos when it came to their part. I know Cindy did. Cindy jumped into this whole other octave, but she can do that. She's a great singer. I think everyone wanted to put a little filigree on it, so they jumped out. I looked at my part, and I thought, don't even try. Just hit the mark and shut up. It wasn't a time to show off for me. He is correct. (laughs) Cyndi Lauper has has four bars, and in the second one, skyrockets up an octave, and immediately after Kim Carnes sings her line, going into the refrain... Does another skyrocketing like vocal ad lib. It's amazing. It's so disrespectful. I said earlier, it was like Alan Iverson stepping over someone who <laughs> he knocked over on the way to his ho- on the way to the hoop. Um, during one one through, uh, Billy took a moment to walk over to the uh, piano in the studio and play the song himself, confirming that it was in the key of E. And then he said, E, I hate E. Snakes. <laughs> why did I it have to be? Snakes. Why did it have to be the key of E? Key of E is a hard, it's hard. Well, it's tricky for men, because that's why a lot of uh, bands tune down a half step or a whole step or whatever, because for men, typically that vocal range is like, that's why a lot of blues stuff is in open D tuning, because it's a tricky range. For men, you can't always uh, take up the octave. It's just a, I I understand Billy, where he's coming from, from that. Still though, I don't think he got the the short end of the stick lyrically. I believe that went to Willie Nelson, uh, who was given the line, as God has shown us by turning stones to bread, which I don't think is in the Bible. No, that's a misquoted Bible line. Yeah, is it the beating the swords into plowshares? Is that what they were going for, and they just didn't bother to cross-reference it? I, 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 I think they just. I think Lionel
1: Richie wanted to get out of Michael's room before the snake <laughs> came back, and they just, just was like,
2: I think it's right. Perhaps that's why a, a confused Willie stumbles into that line a full half beat late. <laughs> It's like, wait, is this right? Uh, uh. Uh, uh, Cyndi Lauper showed up, uh, as Cyndi Lauper. As Cyndi Lauper, yeah. (laughs) Well, what do you think of Cyndi Lauper? I I love love Cyndi Lauper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, She's a tremendous vocalist. She's really interesting as far as the um. She's this weird lineage of, of, like, New York songwriter, like, that that she's so unusual, has, like, a old, like, vaudeville piano on it, but she's this new wave figure. She's got tremendous vocal range. Uh, yeah, Cyndi Lauper whips, dude. One of my favorite Prince covers, too, When You Were Mine. She's a great cover when you were oh. mine on there. Uh, but, you know, uh, she showed up with enough jewelry on it that it f***ed up playback by banging against the mic stand and had to have it removed piece by piece. Take by take. Cindy was like, wait, what's that jangle? We keep getting that jangle. Is there
1: there like somebody playing the tambourine? Like, what is that? And then they find like, oh, I can't do a Cindy Lopper voice. Oh, no. (laughs) It's my bracelets. Yeah.
2: (laughs) It's a Betty Boop voice. Essentially, yeah. She's like, IRL Betty Betty Boop. Um, Quincy Jones uh, seems to harbor a grudge about this. He was told Vulture in 2018 She had a manager come over to me and say The rockers don't like the song I know how that shit works We went to see Springsteen, Hall & Oates, Billy Joel And all those cats and they said we love the song Well, Billy Joel didn't uh, So I said to Lopper Okay, you can just get your shit over with and leave And she was f***ing up every take Because her necklace or bracelet was rattling in the microphone It was just her that had a problem Maybe that's the one
1: Ken Cragen's talking about And he thought she was in a band or something uh,
2: yeah, playing yeah. fast and loose with the term band mm. It was not the end of her wardrobe problems She later told Interview Magazine When I finally got there to the session I had a jacket on An Italian general's jacket with tails And I see Michael Jackson's jacket This was in his quasi-military phase And I said, oh no So I took it off Also because I had mousse on that was flaking all over the jacket So it looked like I had yellow dandruff <laughs> I was standing next to Billy Joel Who was gracious And Bruce Springsteen. What? What the hell is that quote? She didn't go
1: out of her way to say that Bruce Springsteen was also gracious, which leads me to believe that something happened,
2: which I don't want to think about. I love the idea of Bruce Springsteen breaking character for like the first time in his life and looking down at Cindy Lauper and being like, girl, you are a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Just like something. She's sweet in this. In the documentary, she's sweet. Just something extremely bitchy. Cindy does, despite murdering her, uh, come to the rescue of Kim Betty Davisized Carnes, who had a sinus infection, struggled to sing her sign part, and she was too embarrassed to admit this to Quincy, or afraid, and uh, she confessed this to Cindy, who stepped all over her on the track. <laughs> Carnes later said, Cindy was incredible. I said, oh my gosh, this is too high for me, and I've got such a cold. And she said, let's figure it out. Which, in the final product, means, let me step all over your face. She's holding her up vocally. I don't no, know. she does not. You hold someone up vocally by going under them or doubling them. You don't immediately say, watch how high I can sing, sicko. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have a sinus infection? Check this shit out.
3: <laughs> Come on.
2: <laughs> And I say this as a Cindy Lauper fam. Uh, but Cindy was kind of the scrappy little underdog on the sessions. Uh, most people yeah. in the room were rooting for her. Barely two years earlier, she'd been playing Holiday Inns. You know, she almost lost her voice at one point, too. She she was singing in a band called Blue Angel. And I think she, like, oh, blew yeah. out her vocal cords for that. When, she, when that band was... They wanted to sign her without that band. And she refused, if memory serves correctly. She wanted to sign the whole band. And then that backfired later on when they broke up. But, um... She told journalist David Breskin, who was there for the session, she said, I'm a little blown away. Can you believe you're sitting in a room with Ray Charles playing the piano? I mean, just start off with that. It's good to get everybody off their rumps, because a lot of people have so much, and some people have nothing. So it makes you think every time you eat something and don't finish it. I struggled. I starved. I was in the hospital twice for malnutrition, once for malnutrition and dehydration, because I had no food to eat. Just this year, I thought about where I came from, and I can't believe it. It's a very real thing to be hungry. I think how hungry I was, but I would maybe get to eat something during the day. If I didn't eat one day, I'd eat the next day. But these people, they ain't eaten for weeks. Just imagine that all in like that Brooklyn honk.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more
4: Too Much Information in just a moment. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury
5: Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B O D I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit.
2: <laughs> god this is so damn funny another one one point of contention during the the, the re- recording process was uh michael jackson's use of nonsense syllables jordan remind, remind me what those syllables were shalom shalinge uh bob geldoff and possibly others felt that those syllables uh, somewhat undermined the seriousness of the undertaking and possibly could even be construed as offensive being as that they are just gibberish that vaguely sounded african to this them. was so yes. in vogue doesn't line in all night long isn't there like a there's like a quasi african is that actually african i that i don't know all night long mm. the two genders of the lyrics in all night long uh in my google search from Hollywood.com, Richie did such a good job that Africans often compliment him on his Swahili. They come up and say, Lionel, it's amazing. Couple more search results down. Lionel has admitted that certain African lyrics in the song were actually made up. <laughs> <laughs> Jury's still out on that one. Anyway, uh, Lionel Richie insisted that, uh, Jordan, what was that again? Shalom Shalinge. It was an actual Swahili phrase. It is not. Uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, as only Stevie Wonder could, called a friend in Africa from the studio (laughs) and suggested replacing those with an actual Swahili phrase that translated was, we are the children, we are the world. (laughs) This is at which point tensions boiled over, the cameras were shut off, and Ray Charles reportedly shouted, say what? It's three o'clock in the damn morning. (laughs) Swahili, I can't even sing in English no more. And uh, Waylon Jennings left the studio muttering, no good old boy sings in Swahili, which, God, that sounds racist. (laughs) And accounts vary as to whether or not he even came back. None of the group photos show him in it, but he does have a credit as part of the chorus. And, of course, Bob Geldof with a finger in the air saying, "Mm, actually, Ethiopians don't speak Swahili. And it would be best to uh sing what? Sing for the people who've got money to give
1: ah. rather than the people who are starving. Mm. Cause you are singing to people who you are making an appeal to those people and not to the people who are actually starving, which
2: God, I hate Bob, is Bob a, yeah. What a what a wet fart of a human being. Uh Al Jarreau came up with One World, Our World, which got modified to One World, Our Children. Tina Turner, so tired she is visibly singing with her eyes closed, said, I like Shalom better. Who cares what it means? Tina had a headache that night, and her duet partner, Billy Joel, who is himself getting over the flu, told her that he had an aspirin in his pocket. She said, No, I don't take that. I only use homeopathic. Billy Joel replied, I don't know what that is but I ain't got any eventually Ray Charles tired of the debate and announced ring the bell Quincy ring the bell translation the fight is over uh and in the end they went with the English line one world our children so let's start giving oh you gotta do the Ray Charles section that's so No, you do it I I, you love Billy Joel more than I do as much as I love Ray Uh, Charles
1: that, that is true that is true Uh, I love Ray Charles in this whole We Are the World saga. Lionel Richie called him the most popular guy in the room. Bruce Springsteen was probably a close second. And many of the participants in the session didn't know ahead of time that Ray Charles would even be there. Billy Joel, who'd flown in from New York that morning and was still wearing his winter coat that night, couldn't get over it because Ray Charles was just his ultimate hero. He wrote New York State of Mind in an attempt to emulate him. And when Ray Charles arrived, Billy Joel exclaimed, That's like the Statue of Liberty walking in. And he was visibly shaking when Quincy Jones introduced him to Ray. And he said, Ray, this is the guy who wrote New York State of Mind. And when Billy explained that this song was an homage to him... They struck up a lasting friendship and within a year they recorded a duet together called Baby Grand which despite my love of both these artists I had never heard until earlier today and it's actually really good and the video is really the sweet. The video
2: is adorable. It just opens with the yeah. two of them singing side by side and Ray Charles like ad-libbing around a very sincere Billy Joel. It's it's incredible. It's so adorable. Anyway. And Ray inducted Billy Joel into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in
1: 1999. So that's... I love that. I love that. I love when uh, artists get bigged up by their heroes. I think that's the sweetest thing. Uh, Bruce Springsteen also compared Ray Charles to a landmark, compared him to the Washington Monument. But uh, Ray Charles himself had a special kinship with Willie Nelson. He and Willie kept ducking out to Willie's notorious tour bus, which they parked around back behind the (laughs) studio... And yeah, I know. And during their, uh, their tete-a-tete, Willie Nelson recalled telling Ray, wouldn't it be nice if we did something for the people in our own country, which planted the seeds for farm aid, which continues to this day. But these sessions for We Are The World meant a lot to Ray Charles, as he'd been to Africa and witnessed the effects of the famine firsthand. Uh, he knew all too well that thousands would die that very night while they were singing. And as he told journalist David Breskin during the session... I put my hands on these children and their skin feels like cellophane on bone. You have to feel that man. That's unreal stuff. I ain't talking about skin. I'm talking cellophane on bone and Ray, he he truly, he brought that sense of gravitas and seriousness to the session. In addition to the, the levity that he also displayed and you know, Quincy Jones was the producer of the record. Ray Charles was sort of the band leader John Oates remembered Ray as being the only one in the room who could pull rank and keep everyone in line. He said Ray Charles, being who he was, commanded a certain deference and respect from everyone, even though he didn't assert himself in any weird way. He was just standing in the middle doing his part. Lionel, Michael, and Quincy were running the show. It was their song, their production, and everyone's very respectful, trying to make it happen. There were moments when people, and I won't name any names because it isn't worth it, in the chorus started to put their producer's hats on. They started to say, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? And coming in with their ideas. It was obvious that it was a complicated thing to pull off in general, and having too many cooks in the stew would be a giant catastrophe. Ray, every once in a while, would just pipe up, come on, hey, let's go. Listen to Michael. Let's get this thing done. He was there to sing, and he sensed that it could go south very quickly. He commanded a lot of respect, and I thought that was very cool. And Ray Charles and Quincy Jones, they go way back to the clubs in Seattle back in the 40s. Uh, they met when Quincy was 14 and Ray was 16. And Ray called Quincy 66, and Quincy called Ray 69. Those were their nicknames, and I
2: i don't even want to know.
1: You know why they called his backup uh, and-
2: singers the Ray Letts, right? No he had to let Ray.
1: I'm picking up on the context, but I don't know understand. He I don't had, know a, that expression he had a gang
2: of all-female backing singers called the Raylets, yeah, no, and to become a Let, you had to let Ray oh, th- the oh. implication. Hmm. Is that true? I've heard. I think it might even be in Ray. In Ray? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have to do to get the nickname 69? Uh, well, what is 66 then? butt stuff uh, yeah, I don't,
1: <laughs> don't want to know uh, even though they were just a few years apart Quincy always felt that Ray was much more mature because he had his own place when he was a teenager and he had two girlfriends which Quincy was very impressed by because he would be And Quincy was also very impressed with Ray Charles because he overcame his adversity, his blindness to become one hell of a musician. Speaking to GQ in 2018, which is also known in Quincy's world as the Troubled Era, Quincy had this to say about Ray... He was the most independent blind man you could ever witness. He'd go cross streetlights, go to the supermarket, shop, count his change with no help. No damn canes and no cups, nothing like that. His mother wouldn't let him do it. And the only time he got blind was when the girls were around and he'd start walking in the walls so they'd feel sorry for him and help him. Stevie Wonder took a similar approach in life and took great delight in messing with people by proving that he was far more able than he seemed. He famously, when he was on tour, would memorize the layout of the lobby of the hotel they were staying at and then just walk around, you know, unassisted perfectly, making it seem like he knew exactly where he was going. But, you know, he did. And there was a great moment during the We of the World session when Ray Charles asked where the bathroom was. And sure enough, Stevie was like, oh, yeah, don't worry, I know, I'll show you. And he led him down the hallway to the toilet. <laughs> the blind
2: literally leading the blind. I, I guess he must have, I mean, he must have memorized the floor plan like he used to do in the hotels, right? Yeah, probably. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, Quincy
1: Jones, he didn't exactly have it easy either, though. Uh, in fact, his upbringing was... I would argue maybe the most Dickensian of anyone in the We Are The World session, aside from maybe Tina Turner. Uh, I know this because I just wrote his premature obituary for People Magazine. Do people know what that is? They, a pre-bit? They have to bank obituary. Yeah, pre-bit. You have to bank them in advance for artists of a certain age just have them on hands. hope I'm not giving away any secrets that... They don't want out there. Anyway, uh, Quincy Jones, he was born in Chicago's notorious Bronzeville neighborhood where his father was a carpenter who worked for the city's most notorious gangsters. Dead bodies were a frequent sight in his childhood, and he recalled one hanging from a telephone pole with an ice pick through its neck. His mother, Sarah, was prone to erratic behavior, uh, like suddenly heaving Quincy's birthday cake onto the back porch in the middle of his fifth birthday celebration. And Jones would remain haunted by the memory of her being taken away from his home in a straitjacket when he was a boy. And also, I don't even know if I can read this. And also of the time he visited her in the psych ward only to find her eating her own fecal matter. Quincy Jones, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, After his mom was institutionalized, Quincy was sent to live in a Louisville shotgun shack with his grandmother, a former slave who taught him to catch rats that she would fry them for dinner. And he reunited with his father once he remarried and the family was relocated to Seattle where he would meet Ray Charles. But his abusive stepmother made life at home hell. She refused to call Quincy by his name until he was 57. He was always Jones boy. Uh, In other words... She wouldn't call him by his name until after he made We Are the World. uh And I guess she used to beat him regularly. Uh, then there was the time in the 70s when the blood vessels in his brain burst. So, yeah, Quincy Jones, hell of a life. <laughs> hmm. But the sessions. <laughs> but it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all. But the sessions. Let's look at at the bright side here. Uh, Despite Bob Geldof's little outburst, the sessions were, for the most part, light. There was one playful moment when the crowd broke into a spontaneous version of Harry Belafonte's Deo, or the Banana Boat song, which is a fitting tribute to the guy who sort of started the whole venture. And also, as Harry noted, the song is about a boat that carries food. So again, it's a fitting song. Uh, Billy Joel later said there was a table piled up with cold cuts, sandwiches and stuff, (coughs) Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, and I kept wandering over to this deli table, hitting on a beer or a sandwich. It wasn't like church, you know. And, I love this, Billy Joel managed to sneak his fiancée, model Christy Brinkley, in to introduce her to Bob Dylan and Paul Simon, presumably still trying to make up for the fact that she was way out of his league. Didn't he also date, like, Elle McPherson, too?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I just love the fact that he picked, like, he didn't introduce her to chiseled out of bruce bruce, bruce, bruce with that jawline <laughs> or like even Dar- even daryl hall like any of the other yeah. alpha men he was he found the two nebbishier guys in the room and was like this is my wife <laughs> it's the only two men in here shorter than me oh, adorable uh there's a great story
1: where bruce springsteen drank a budweiser and left the can on the risers where they were all standing and michael jackson's personal photographer who was on hand because of course michael brought his own photographer uh spotted it and suggested that michael pose with it thinking that it would be really funny to see you know squeaky clean michael jackson with a budweiser can and michael initially refused because he said it would just be bad for his image but the photographer was like oh come on who's ever going to find out please it'll be funny and then a few days later this photo made it into the new york post And the photographer had a total meltdown because he was trying to figure out like who leaked this image. Like, Michael, I talked Michael into taking this photo for fun, and now it's in the paper, and you know, he clearly didn't want it out there. Eventually, he learned that Michael did it himself as a prank on this photographer to make him sweat. (sighs) Sick man. (laughs) Uh, Diana Ross, whose reputation as a diva had long preceded her. I like this took pity on video director Tom Trivich around 4 a.m. She broke her hamburger in two and called him over saying, come here, come here. You haven't eaten. And he was uh, surprised, shall we say, by her thoughtfulness. Later telling Esquire, I don't want to say she was. Well, let's just say she'd been
2: difficult other times i had been working with her. He didn't mention that she had already chewed that half. (laughs) Spat it in his
1: mouth like a mama bird. (laughs) Here's another image for yeah. you. A lot of good images Tremendous in this episode. Uh, Quincy Jones made a joke in the middle of the session that they were available for proms, which I find funny. It, it, it's just as in Quincy Jones' voice. like Available for proms too, baby. Like,
2: No. Okay.
1: All in all, <laughs> they kept it pretty light. And before the sessions were over, many of the singers took their music sheets around and got everyone to sign it. Like a little yearbook. It's Aww. so cute. Uh, Kenny Rogers apparently was the one who kicked off the trend. He said, once we sang it all the way through and realized how well thought out it was, we realized that the song was something special. So I took a sheet of music from the session and started getting people to sign it. Once I started, Diana Ross started, and then everybody was running around trying to get everybody. My copy's framed on the wall of my house in Atlanta. And John Oates did the same thing. He later said, I have it framed in my studio in Colorado. When people come in and see it, they freak. I made sure I got everybody. I even got Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder to sign it. For once, I had the presence of mind to do something like that, and it's my most treasured possession. Stevie Wonder signs by giving his fingerprint, but Ray Charles, he has pretty decent penmanship. That might be because I think Ray Charles wasn't born blind. No. I think he went blind when he was like four or five, maybe.
4: Yeah, it wasn't that he was that like might have been something
2: Sly sc- or something, something Dickensian and
1: horrifying? Mm. Um, Quincy Jones' signed music sheet hangs in his den. He says it always makes me smile when I look at it. And start reading those names.
2: <laughs> this is all fine. No, I just I'm thinking of like, he's like, and I know which one of them actually killed JFK. the recording session which as you may remember took place after the amas that night went from 10 30 p.m until 8 a.m they didn't even start recording their solo parts until 4 a.m quincy originally planned to record the individual lines separately in isolation booths but it was getting late or early so he opted for a quicker but riskier method placing 21 microphones in a u shape and getting them all to record side by side Taking this kind of chance is like running through hell with gasoline drawers on, he said in a soundbite for the ages. Any talking or outside noises, laughing, giggling, even a creak in the floor could ruin the whole thing. An uncharacteristically shy Cindy Lauper asked Quincy if she could improvise, and he sounded thrilled, responding, Absolutely, this is not right of spring. At one point during the rehearsal, Cindy cried, Hey everybody, stop laughing when I'm singing. You can laugh when I talk, but not when I sing.
1: You laugh when I talk. But not when I sing. Boop, boop, (laughs) Um, (laughs)
2: ba-doop. At another moment, Stevie Wonder messes up and Lionel Richie cracks. Stevie messed up. Is that legal? (laughs) That's great. That is good. Um, The assembled choir was just about to record a take when two guests arrived in the studio unannounced. David Breskin's liner notes recount the following moment. The mood is lighthearted. Everyone's telling lies and joking around. The artists have caught their second win. Just as they're ready to record, two Ethiopian women, guests of Stevie Wonder, walk into the room. One woman says, tearily, thank you on behalf of everyone from our country. The artists are stunned. No one speaks. A deep, penetrating silence. The women cry. The artists cry. It's the moment when the stars come crashing down to earth. It's the moment no one will forget. It's a moment of no photographs. The women, shaken, are led from the room. Quincy breaks the silence, softly saying, it's time to sing. But the feeling in the room remains. Whatever show business pretension remained in the room after Geldoff's initial speech five hours ago is vanquished for good. Here we are, having a good time, says Lionel, and reality walks in the door. It took them seven takes to get the final take of this, and the group once again erupted into spontaneous applause. Ray Charles left somewhat early. Was he the oldest guy? That's understandable. Ray Must Charles have would have been. been ready for bed. Although he did announce, "I haven't had no good lovin' since January," and it was January, <laughs> according to Rolling Stone, his vocal solo was recorded a few days later. Uh, Tina Turner, for some reason, shouted out "Fishburger" in celebration for nailing her part. Is that? Do you know? Is that like an old blues thing? <laughs> Not as far as I know. Maybe she just likes the McFish. <laughs> McFleet was McFishburger saw something there anything there what no that's that's actually pretty good mick fleetwood's fish and chips uh a a competitor for kenny rogers roaster oh all right we're doing we're on to something here jamie can we get mick fleetwood on the phone i want to pitch something to him (laughs) um bruce springsteen again fresh off of months of touring gave lionel his autograph after which lionel declared he's now officially on vacation Bruce told everyone how good the track was before saying, I want to get a soda. And with that, he walks out of the studio, (laughs) past six limos in the parking lot, across the street to his rent-a-car in La Brea, and is gone.
1: (laughs) That's his exit line. I'm going to go get a soda. That's his Irish goodbye. What kind of soda? Is he a Werner's
2: guy? Werner's?
1: Oh, man. He's a cheer wine. Fago? He's a a mellow yellow guy. (laughs) (laughs) He would be.
2: Mr. Pibb. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) that I buy. Uh, Around 6.45 a.m., Quincy starts asking for a few more vocal fills. Stevie, ever the jester, quips, Q, just point to me when it's my turn, okay? He's got a million of them. (laughs) No one has made more jokes about being blind than Stevie Wonder. By sunrise, only Quincy Jones, Lionel Richie, Diana Ross, Ken Cragen, and the arranger, Tom Baller remained in the studio. Michael Jackson may have also been there. Uh, he reportedly requested footage from the event to view before it was made into a sizzle reel and sent to the press. When they asked him what his address was, his face went blank. I just know how to get there through the back streets, he replied.
1: <laughs> so did he not know his own address, or was he really not willing to give his own address out? And he was just feigning at ignorance.
2: There's something so quietly sinister about that. I only know the back way. Richie was so exhausted he claims to have no memory of hosting that night's American Music Awards ceremony and winning five awards, including Favorite Pop Rock Male Artist. Uh, Thirty-five years later, when asked about the day, the first thing he says is, "Let us first trace the meaning of the words delirium and exhaustion." Is that the that's the one where he kept being like outrageous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ken Cragen would later recall, We were huddled in a circle on the floor of the studio, tightly hugging each other and crying like crazy from the experience of the night. The arguable architect of the session had an ignoble end to his long night. His Jaguar had some sort of electrical problem, so he had to drive home to Beverly Hills with its door open and the alarm blaring. When all was said and done, the session reportedly had not cost a penny. Despite an operating budget of 200 grand, they got over a million dollars in goods and services donated. Uh, again, song. Uh, Tom Bryan, his number one's column for Stere gum, said, "We are the world" is a tough hang. It's a glacial and unending seven-minute ordeal. An ongoing series of stars stepping up to deliver their most anguished and worried wails. Most of them only get a sentence or less, so they put everything they have into singing hot air platitudes. It's time to lend a hand to life, the greatest gift of all. We Are the World is pure musical goo, a shiny, rhythmless trudge that's only there to melt into the background. The focus, instead, is on the singers. Some of those singers sound pretty great. Whatever her feelings on the song, Cindy Lauper ha- howls the absolute f*** out of her one big line, and Jackson himself is sensitively shivery on his solo moment. Some of them, like Dylan and Springsteen, sound like butt. Mostly though, they're a mismatched mess A big group of people who don't have any chemistry with one another And who aren't entirely certain why they're all there The song is a chore, and it sounds like one Brian does however concede later on that the song was indeed Created with the best intentions Released on March 7th, 1985 We Are The World became the fastest selling American pop single in history Up to that point, moving 800,000 copies within three days of its release The radio edit to this was 622 Jesus That was also the first single since the Beatles Let it be in 1970 to enter Billboard's Top 5 within two weeks of its release I love how the Beatles side note Are just like shorthand for all chart Achievements everything every significant Chart achievement is like yeah This was such and such in relation to the Beatles Doing it first (laughs) or longer Or more of it When it finally yeah well When it finally hit the top spot, it became the first and only number one song in the Hot 100 for Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Steve Perry, Willie Nelson, and Al Jarreau. After staying at number one for four weeks, Madonna. Ooh, (laughs) Ha, That is her name, right? I thought it was Chacon, but... Ooh, Um, Sorry, I just got sidetracked think about how much i hate madonna knocked off by madonna's crazy for you not even the best song called crazy for you we are the world became the first ever single to be certified multi-platinum it re- received a four-time certification by the raaa and at the 1986 grammys award the song and its accompanying video won four awards record of the year song of the year best pop performance by a Duo or a group with vocal and best music video comma short form What's best music video long form? Do they I, I don't care. It eventually, it sold upwards of 20 million copies worldwide, making it the best-selling single of the decade. In one year, the song raised $44.5 million for famine relief in Africa, and all told, raised over $80 million in humanitarian aid for Africa and the United States, and still pulls in about a half million dollars annually. The song was included on the album We Are The World, which featured nine additional songs, including If Only For The Moment, Girl, by Steve Perry, Prince of the Revolutions for the Number, The Tears in Your Eyes, Trapped by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and the rest. Jordan
1: The first money for this venture came two days after the session during a press conference held with Quincy Jones, Harry Belafonte, Ken Cragan, and Bob Geldof, among a few others. And Ken Cragen was talking about the freebie USA for Africa sweatshirts they were going to hand out to all the reporters present. And Bob Geldof interjected semi-jokingly, sell them, don't give them. And so they settled on selling these sweatshirts for $10 a pop to all the reporters. And by the end of the press conference, he'd been handed $510, which were the very first direct contributions to USA for Africa. And it was reportedly the happiest that anyone had seen Bob Geldof during the entire experience, which I believe. And two months after releasing We Are the World, the USA for Africa charity organization received its first check for its record sales, and Ken Cragen went straight to Africa to help. He later said, "'The first check we picked up was for $5 million. We picked that up in May. Then we immediately put a trip together to go to Africa, and we flew up a huge cargo plane full of supplies.'" And Ken wasn't alone in his trip to Sudan. He also made it with a group of 26 that included charity board members and doctors. And they spent the next few years making sure the money went to those who needed it the most. They focused on providing food and supplies to organizations that had demonstrated a commitment to the cause and also shown that they could use the donations effectively. This was a big problem with things like Live Aid and George Harrison's Concert for Bangladesh, where a lot of the money got squandered by either dishonest charities or just mismanaged charities. They also ensured that the money would be doled out slowly with a percentage of the money earmarked for long-term self-reliant development and solutions to systemic problems. Ken Cragen defended this decision by saying, quote, we could go out and spend it all in one shot, maybe save some lives in the short term, but it would be like putting a Band-Aid over a serious wound before adding that it would likely take an estimated 10 to 20 years to make a difference to Africa's long-term problems. Probably more like 40 to 50 years these days. Conversely, Bob Geldof's distributions from Live Aid have come into scrutiny. Uh, Spin Magazine had a whole expose that reported that the donations that he raised were accidentally used to fund the Brutal Dictator
2: whoops oops all dictators
1: <laughs> where were you on that one Bob yeah oh yeah soul speaks we healy there oh yeah but <laughs> in addition to still pulling in a sizable amount of cash each year some half a million we are the world started a ripple effect of charity singles some merely bad others on par with genocide Despite their abysmal musical quality, it's still obviously a positive thing that they exist at all. There's Tears Are Not Enough by the Canadian supergroup Northern Lights, which included a surprisingly decent lineup. There's Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Getty Lee, Anne Murray, and Brian Adams, among others. That's not bad. And then there was the aforementioned album, courtesy of a heavy metal coalition calling themselves Here in Age. That's really good. <laughs> features heavy metal artists like ronnie james dio and members of judas priest quiet riot motley Crue, and more boasting a truly bonkers
2: ensemble of lead guitarists in addition to vocalists it's just oh it's so good imagine all of the sensitivity and 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 any and saying that's whatever sensitivity is present in we are the world imagine it stripped out and yarled through the assembled throats of some of LA's most leathery coke addicts <laughs> and ker- poodleiest-haired men. You know who's present there? Neil oh. Sean. Oh my! Enemy of the pod, Neil Sean. <laughs> I don't know. You've beat him a few times. He's not. Yeah, I was gonna times. say you've had good luck him, yeah. with Neil Sean. It's just really me. So. Yeah. Jury's still yeah, out you, on Neil. You shot on his wife, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> White House <laughs> gate crasher Michelle Salahi. There's also Sun
1: City, which is more of a protest record than a charity record. And I think there's a subtle difference there. Uh, but the Stevie Van Zandt-Helm song raised awareness for the evils of apartheid. Uh, and there's also the number one hit, That's What Friends Are For, with Stevie Wonder, Dionne Warwick, Elton John, and Gladys Knight, which raised money for AMFAR, an AIDS charity. And as we mentioned earlier, Willie Nelson was inspired to start Farm Aid following his participation in USA for Africa. Uh, we Are the World was performed live on a handful of occasions with a suitably starry cast, most notably at Live Aid, which was held just a few months after the song was released in 1985. And it was also sung, I have no memory of this, at an inauguration event for Bill Clinton in January of 1993, which features vocal help from the First Family ooh, Kenny Rogers, Diana Ross, and Michael Jackson. Mm. And we touched on this earlier. We Are The World was re-recorded on February 1st, 2010, in order to raise money for those affected by the earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. This 21st century version of the song featured Justin Bieber. I shouldn't have led with that. Barbra Streisand, (laughs) making up for the fact that she skipped the original one. Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20. Pink Wyclef Jean. Jamie Foxx. Jeff Bridges? i guess he did yeah, sort of did. sing yeah he would have been, would have been all right on crazy heart oh yeah you're right okay and a duet between janet jackson and her late brother michael supposedly at the jackson family's request i guess they controlled the rights to the song because he was a co-writer so i guess they could make whatever demands they wanted uh what's more this is really interesting to me lionel richie even talked about recording a third version of we are the world to raise money for covid19 relief in 2020 <laughs> this failed to occur, but oh, we Tom got Bryan
2: imagined thing.
1: Yes, Tom Bryan, the stereo gum writer, did a fantasy recasting for this 2020 version of We Are the World. Um let's pick that apart, shall we? Must we? Just for a moment. All right. It's not like it's pushing midnight and we're on <laughs> our third hour of this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Too much riffing about yes. uh <laughs> Well, never mind. That's all on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, you'll all never hear right. any of that. Who's Stevie, Stevie Wonder? Wonder.
1: Stevie Wonder is being recast in 2020 as Beyonce. I can see that. That's fine. Yeah.
2: Paul Simon
1: as Lana Del Rey. I don't understand that at all.
2: No, it would be like Father John Misty.
1: Yeah. Somebody with a little more Cloud or Gravitas or like...
2: Bon Iver. It'd be Bon Iver.
1: Okay. Put a pin in that. Kenny Rogers, Little Nas X. I don't understand the comparison there. If anything, <sighs> I'd say
2: like... Um, Willie Nelson, he's still alive. F*** it. Prop him up in front of the microphone again. Brad Paisley.
1: Sh- Brad Paisley. Yeah,
2: fine. Yeah. Uh,
1: James Ingram. I didn't know who he was in the original, so I can't really comment on this. Uh, they recast him as Khaled. Sure. DJ Khaled or Khalid? Oh, Khalid.
2: Excuse me. Moving on. Tina Turner. Gucci Mane. That's just dumb. Billy Joel, Post Malone. That's also dumb. Michael Jackson, Drake. Well, Ah. we know one thing they have in common. (laughs) Diana Ross, Lil Wayne. It's Rihanna. Yeah. It's Rihanna. I
1: don't understand. Dionne Warwick,
2: Lady Gaga. Yes, that's good. That works really well. Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa. The weed thing. Willie Nelson
1: would still be in it.
2: It would yeah, be Willie yeah. Nelson. Willie
1: Nelson playing himself. Willie Nelson
2: uh, as himself. Al Jarreau, James Blake. I don't see that. It would be Sam Smith, I think. Uh, okay. Bruce Springsteen, Ariana Grande. What no. the hell is that? No, no, you need some kind of token big dumb. Um, it would be the kid from Greta Van Fleet. They need like a rock person in there, right? No, who's, who's the married big... to Gwen Stefani? Blake Sheldon. No, it's too country. Oh, yeah. They need a token Heartland rocker Who's like the token Heartland rocker In 2023 Imagine Dragons? I don't even know if that's a genre anymore Adam Levine He's not Heartland a You're gonna drive me to drink, bud Uh, Kenny Loggins Quavo Yes, Steve Perry, Harry Styles That's a one-to-one okay. yeah. I respect that, Daryl Hall, Sway Lee Whatever, Huey Lewis, Lizzo Sure Cindy Lauper Little Uzi Vert, whatever. Kim Carnes, Sia. Pfft. Yeah, right. Sia's f- forgotten more number ones than Kim Carnes ever got within a desert mile of. Bob Dylan, Billy Eilish. No. It would be, who's like a... I think it'd they're be doing like a spokesperson of their generation thing. It'd be uh, Ed Sheeran. Hmm. I'm just thinking who's who's the last guy you saw on TV playing with a guitar? With a guitar? Yeah. yeah. Ray Charles. Bruce Springsteen. Okay. That's yeah. most likable guy in the room, old timer, yeah. Um it should be Smokey Robinson. They should they should address their air and give, give horny a old horny old Smokey who just released an album called Gasms. Oh. I never I do asked, not want. Have you have you heard about Gasms? Yeah, I have, yeah. Good. Well, that was dumb. Um, (laughs) Do you know that Wycliffe Jean's Haiti charity established after that earthquake is uh, alleged to have spent $9 million with half of it on travel and salaries and consultants fees? Investigations into them still open in Haiti? you know that Hope for Haiti became the most watched telethon to date on TV? What? Wow. I that, I didn't know. They closed it in 2012. They fixed Haiti. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What's your
1: outro? Jordan, take us home. Well, regardless of its musical merits, We Are the World helped create an environment where musicians felt a responsibility to take a stand for humanitarian concerns. And as insufferable as that can sometimes be, I would argue that that's a very good thing. And the song also went a long way towards putting the tragedies of Africa in the international spotlight, which is important. The song remains a career highlight for all involved. Quincy Jones recalled in a 2015 USA Today interview, I don't think that night, that experience will ever truly be duplicated again. I know and believe in the power of music to bring people together for the betterment of mankind, and there may be no better example of this than the collective that was We Are The World. And speaking of that once-in-a-lifetime recording session, Lionel Richie told Esquire, We came in like little kids on their first day of kindergarten, and we were all kind of looking at each other. Everybody was kind of freaked out, standing next to each other for a brief moment. And then all of a sudden we realized, it's not about us. We're actually using our voice and our celebrity to save some people. And it's about us giving everything we have to save their lives. So I think the brilliance of that evening was we started out as 45 artists looking at each other and going, yeah, I'm famous and you're famous. And we left as a family.
2: Did they truly and- give everything they had? Or did they give a night? And their sea game? For a decently catered buffet. <laughs> Lionel? Answer the question, Lionel. <laughs>
1: asked if he would write another we are the world Lionel Richie said it wasn't necessary because the lyrics to the song are still relevant today he said you don't need any new words what we were trying to say back then was let's take care of our brothers and sisters over there because one day it might just happen over here and I think that's the (laughs) appropriate level of egotism and wide-eyed idealism to sum up the whole affair what do you think Kyle?
2: I just can't get Michael Jackson feeding Emanuel Webster grapes out of my head. Emanuel Lewis, the character he played was Webster. White grapes? Red grapes? Would it have been better if they were raisins? Worse.
1: Smaller. Have to get his fingers closer to his
2: mouth. Oh! (laughs) Well, folks. (laughs) Well, I think I'm Willie Nelson coming up to the microphone a half beat early in this and you're You're Dionne Warwick gracefully Holding up my script (laughs) This this has been Too much information Approximately a third of this will make it to air (laughs) Thank you for listening If you want to hear the offensive Outtakes and can sign a waiver Venmo us five bucks (laughs) Which we'll donate To ourselves
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening I'm Alex Eigel <laughs> and I'm Jordan Runtag. We'll catch you next time. Too much information was a production of iHeartRadio.
2: The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan
1: Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.